Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And on today's episode, I am speaking with Jenny Tuff. Jenny is an amazing human, an exceptional adventure athlete in both the ultra running and the bikepacking world, and a fantastic rider. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about some of her numerous accomplishments in both disciplines of her adventure career, as well as her latest book, Solo, which chronicles her running across six different continents over a six-year time period. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Jenny is a fascinating and impressive human being, and it was an absolute pleasure to have her on the podcast But before we get to that episode, let's take a moment to thank the people that made it possible, starting with our latest patrons. So this week, we would like to thank Rob McCarty and Esker Cycles for signing up to be sustaining members of the Bikes for Death podcast. These episodes aren't possible without support from the community. And so if you would like to help support our work, you can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. And today's episode is also brought to us by my friends over at Old Man Mountain. Eric from Old Man Mountain, welcome back to the Bikes or Death podcast. It's a new year and we've got some new and exciting things to talk about. So thanks for coming back on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Um, great to talk to you. As you said, we've got Axle Pack this year coming out in just a week. Axle Pack, a new product. Shocking. Y'all are rolling out products faster than we can uh, create mini pods to keep up with them. But uh, I expect that we'll do be doing many more to to highlight all the products as they come out. But this is an exciting one that comes with an exciting offer exclusive for Bikes for Death listeners. And that's not marketing speech. That's real. This is an exclusive offer for Bikes for Death listeners. So first yeah. off, Eric, tell us about the Axle Pack. What is it? Yeah, so Axle Pack is honestly really simple. It's just one of those things that because we make through axles and not many people do or mount things to through axles, it hasn't come out yet. But it's just a rail that adds three pack mounts to any fork you want, but they're through axle mounted so they can't slip, they can't spin, doesn't matter what shape your fork is, suspension, carbon, steel, aluminum, you want to throw a wood fork in there? Sure, who cares? Like, no matter what the shape is. <laughs> Uh, it's going to work. So what we're really excited about is it's going to turn all kinds of bikes that would be great for bike packing, but are just missing that extra mount without having to add a full front rack. You can just add this simple three pack mount, super lightweight. It weighs just 73 grams per side because it's axle mounted. You don't have to worry about ripping eyelets out of your fork, whether it's because you're getting extra adventurous and overloading it, or if you accidentally hit a rock on the side of the trail, um, we see you know, lots of damaged eyelets out there on the internet. And with this, it doesn't matter. Your fork's totally good. Uh, This is going to totally withstand that impact because it's just an aluminum piece that's got those eyelets in it. And we actually put four in so you can choose if you want to mount it lower, mount it higher. You've got all the options. Yeah, man. I mean, it's crazy that it's taken something like this so long to come to market because we've seen um, you mentioned the eyelets getting ripped out, which is not great, but that's only if you have the eyelets. What mm-hmm. we've seen historically is people just duct taping things to their forks or suspension forks. And 
I've always heard that that's not the best way to mount it. It seems intuitive that that's not the best way to mount things to your bike. But until now, there really hasn't been a great option. So I, I love this product. It's so simple. It opens up a variety of options for mounting all kinds of things to your bike, any fork, any bike. I love it. I love that you guys are always thinking outside the box and finding just simple ways to turn bikes into adventure bikes, into bikepacking bikes, into carry whatever you want and go wherever you want bikes. And um, I think that's awesome. Let's get some people out there riding their damn bike. Have a good day, Eric. Talk to you later, Patrick. All right, bye-bye. All right, if you are looking to pick yourself up an axle pack, make sure to use our affiliate link in the show notes and to get 10% off your order, use mountains or death at checkout and that'll take 10% off your order. All right, everybody, welcome to the show today. Noel Battle with Bikepacking Roots. Noel, uh, I think most people are familiar with Bikepacking Roots, but for anyone who isn't familiar, can you tell us a little bit about Bikepacking Roots, what y'all do, and also what is your role at Bikepacking Roots? Sure, Patrick. Um, thanks so much for having me on. I am the executive director at Bikepacking Roots. I've been with the organization um, just under a year now. And um, so we're a national nonprofit, um, 501c3, dedicated to growing and supporting the bikepacking community. Uh, we were founded in 2017 by Kurt Refsnyder and Kate Boyle, who are both pretty well known in, in the bikepacking scene. Um, and our work is really centered around three pillars, ride, connect, and protect. So for routes, we create our own routes. We showcase high quality vetted routes from dedicated route stewards around the country, like yourself, Patrick, is one of our um, route stewards for the Pine Curtain of Texas, or otherwise known as the Lowdown Route. Um, and then we do community work, which is focused around lowering barriers to bikepacking through educational resources, beginner-friendly community campouts, and our BIPOC Bike Adventure Grant Program. And finally, um, we do advocacy work focused on lending our voice on behalf of the community to protect both access to great places to ride and also protect the landscapes themselves and also providing tools and training to enable bike packers to become better advocates and good stewards of the land on which they're riding. Yeah, that's a lot. Y'all have mm -hmm. your fingers in a lot of cookie jars. And I once told Kurt Repsnyder on the podcast that, it, you know, your organization feels like there's some adults that are in charge and like kind of representing and helping to grow the bikepacking community, which is great. And we're going to be featuring bikepacking roots on quite a bit more mini pods coming up uh, this year. And so we're going to be taking a deeper dive into all things bikepacking roots. But for people who want to get involved, learn more about bike, what Bikepacking Roots does and to support all the great work, what are some initiatives, what are some ways that people can get involved with Bikepacking Roots? Sure. Um, if you're not already following us, um, we're active on Instagram and Facebook um, at Bikepacking Roots. That's R-O-O-T-S. Um, and our website is bikepackingroots.org. You can sign up for our free mailing list um, and get some regular emails and updates from me there. Um, we have a great community events calendar that we've been populating that we're really working with folks around the country that are having 
um, non-competitive community-centered events, um, bikepacking related, uh, whether they're overnighters or clinics or other things, we try to share um, anything that great folks are doing around the country. Um, and consider uh, becoming a donor. We are, uh, you know, reliant on funding from from individuals in the bikepacking community, and uh, I'm really excited to be. Work, you know, I'm the first full-time ED at the organization, and I'm excited to to grow our programming and our impact all across the country. So we could definitely use your support. Uh, right now, we're actually fundraising for a BIPOC bike adventure grant um, program, which you could find more information on our website. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Please go check them out. I really appreciate all the work that y'all do. Also, you know, for the community and, you know, y'all have featured one of my routes, as you mentioned, and you also have my events up on your event calendar. And, you know, that's just something y'all do to help promote and grow the community, which is really great. And I really appreciate it. Please, everybody listening, go uh, check out the show notes for how you can learn more about bikepacking routes, get involved become an advocate of their great work. And if you can, like Noel said, throw a couple dollars their way to help support all the great work they're doing. All right, Noel. Well, thanks for coming on until next time. Go ride your damn Thank bike. You. All right. All right. All right. The bills have been paid and now it is time to get to my chat with Jenny tough. True to fashion, we just started chatting as soon as we hopped on Zoom and I just hit the record button. So this episode, we just hop right into it. But before we get to it, let's have my friend Miles Arbor take it away with the Bikes for Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. So what gave you the courage to start then, like to start late and say, you know, this is the year I'm going to go on my first international trip? Uh, I have to give credit to my girlfriend, Natalie. Um, she, hey, whenever we Natalie. met, she, yeah, go Natalie. Yeah, she, she always had that bug. Uh, I mean, she started like traveling, I think at 18 or 19, you know, and uh, so she's very well traveled. And when we met, she was like, do you have your passport? I was like, no, but I can get it. <laughs> and she went on a second date. She must have liked you. <laughs> yeah, our second date was actually... She's my type of girl. She would have run away from that question. No passport, <laughs> no second date. So she had, uh, that's That was one good thing about having a podcast is that she, there was a lot of material for her to go back and get to know me, you know, so to speak. So I think that, you know, she was like, okay, there's something here, you know, I I can work with this. But, uh, and I'm an adventurous person. Like I'm a say yes to life person. It was really just like a, it was a blind spot in my life where I just, for whatever reason, I I mean, it was like always on my radar, like, oh, I'm going to go see the world. I'm going to go travel, but I never prioritized it. I was just, whatever reason, I just never did it. And then I met her and she was like, 
you need to you need to you know spread your wings a little bit and um so yeah i i have been but i've only been to latin america so far um which which is amazing i freaking love it and it it just makes me thirsty for for more yeah yeah latin america was my first trip as well i mean i was 18 um and it's yeah it's like not a beginner's place if you've never traveled before um so well done you like yeah you should definitely get out to Europe and and plan a lot of time for Europe, obviously, because like, how do you pick where to start? It's such a big place. I don't know. Let me ask you that question. Where would where would you start if you were starting somewhere in Europe? What's the first place you would? Okay, if it's your first place, then I would go to Italy. And that sounds like such a boring answer, but like, if it's your first time, you got to go to Italy. Like, especially as a bike packer. It is bikepacking paradise. You've got Alps and Dolomites. You've got coast. You've got island. Like, you've got so much. And then you've got, like, Italian culture and Italian food. I think it is one of the best bikepacking destinations in the world. And I know that's such a boring answer. I meant to say, like, really cool places you've never heard of. But, like, (laughs) it is amazing. If you've never been to Europe, I think it's just going to fit all the cliches that you want to see in Europe as well. Yeah. You know, like good Italian culture. I think, yeah, I think that's where I would start. And then I would, and then I would go East and then I would do Eastern Europe, really amazing places out there. Yeah. I think Italy is high on our list. So Natalie and I are talking about doing a bike tour, bike packing trip, uh, in Europe somewhere. And so I've actually been polling people I've been talking to. I'm like, where, where would you go? And Italy does keep coming up, but like, you know, I really if I'm going to go to a place, I really want to immerse myself in the food and the culture and the art and the scenery. Like I want all of it. I don't want to only go out into the mountains and never, you know, get to experience like, okay, what, yeah. what is Italy like? And I do think that, um, from what I've looked at, it looks like Italy is the type of place where you can go and, and it's a nice mix of everything essentially. And the culture always finds you. I think that's, it's a really big difference in the mountain culture in Europe versus what we're used to in North America is that like, it's never quiet. You're never alone. There are refugio huts that you're going to meet like lots of locals that are out doing their own sports. Like going to the mountains isn't as quiet as an experience in the Alps as it, as it is in the Rockies. Um, so even if you do pick a total trail adventure, you're going to get so much culture versus what you'd be used to in North America. Is that because there's more people like outdoor recreating and more opportunities? Oh, population like, density, you know, like Europe is, you know, if you look at it on a map and how many people live in it, like there's just, yeah, there's yeah. population density. Um, yeah. And lots and huge mountain culture, especially in a place like Italy. Um, the mountain sport culture is, is so active that if you're on a trail, you're going to meet lots of cool people. So we're all going to your... something like harder than you and faster than you. And you'll just be like, <laughs> Shit, every granny here is stronger than me. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I live in Texas at sea level, so I feel like everywhere I go, um, you know, we don't have elevation. I can I can compete with you on heat, maybe. Maybe that's where I have an Okay, that's good. That'll help you. That'll help in Italy most of the time. Good. Where was your first international trip? I went to Venezuela when I was 18 and I didn't speak any Spanish. It was like I think when you don't even know how much trouble you're about to get into, it makes it easier to get into it. Um, yeah, I was, a, I was such a dumb gringa. 
Um, yeah, so I went to Venezuela. My I took a year out after school and went and got my dive master. And I was just a little scuba diving hippie for six months in Venezuela. Oh, wow. Six months? Yeah. Yeah. So you just, you graduated high school. You didn't do what I did and dropped out. I'm assuming you graduated and you're like, I'm out of here. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Everyone knew what they were doing. Everyone had, um, everyone had already applied to university. And I was like, wait, when did you guys do that? I didn't, I didn't do it yet. Um, and just, you know, that total existential dread and anxiety, um, being a teenager and, and feeling like your life path is set out and you know exactly how it's going to end because your parents are telling you it should end the ways that theirs did. You're just going to end up in the same type of house, like in another suburb doing the same stuff. Um, so yeah, I took some time off, um, went to Venezuela and then came back, worked at a job and then did university. And that was boring as well. And then I had the same thing happened when I finished university. I was like, I don't want to go get a job. This sounds so horrible. So uh, with all the money that I had, which was not very much, um, I bought a touring bike and figured out how to ride a bike. <laughs> the rest is history. Wow. Did you, that first solo trip or that first trip to Venezuela, was that a solo trip or did you go with friends or? No, it was solo. No, all my, all my friends were going on the normal path. They just thought I was having a mental breakdown. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't think any of them took a gap year. That is insane. That is so crazy and so impressive. I, what, what is I know that, that about? Now, but at the time I didn't know, like at the time I was like, this is normal. Cause I've thought of it, you know, like I just didn't, I didn't know how dangerous these places could be. I didn't know that um, traveling alone was strange or anything like that. I just thought, yeah, scuba diving sounds amazing. I love the water. I love the sea. I'll go do that. I want to learn Spanish. So I just went. And then afterwards, I think everyone was like, oh my God, did you really do that? And I just, I didn't, I was a, like a dumb 18 year old. I just didn't know that what I was doing was potentially brave and risky. It just, yeah. just seemed like a good idea at the time, as they say. That's a, that's a kind of an easy write-off. It feels like I, I'm going to push back slightly because I, you know, you have this trajectory in your life that started maybe at 18 where you're like, I'm going to sign myself up for the unknown and do it solo. And I mean, fast forward to Kyrgyzstan and, you know, completely unknown, completely uncharted territories. No one's ever done it before. And you go and do that. So like, it, it seems like it's more of like your personality or some type of character trait that kind of allows you to, to do that. Cause I don't, I don't think that's in most people's yeah. wheelhouse, you know? I guess what I mean is that I didn't know that was special and I didn't know that uh, people didn't have that. Like I just, I didn't, yeah, I didn't think I was weird or special or anything like that. I just thought it was a completely normal idea. I didn't think I was being courageous. Um, and then I guess as I did more and I grew up and kind of got feedback from other people about how I live my life, I realized, and especially getting people, you know, emailing me and asking me all the time, how on earth do you do this? Can you please tell me how? And I would go, well, what's, <laughs> what's the barrier? I don't understand. And then kind of um, through soul searching kind of figured out where, where the bravery lay. But um, yeah, I, I genuinely did all these things at the time because I, it just seemed like a good way to do things. It just seemed like fun. I didn't, 
think, wow, I'm going to blow everyone's minds and be this amazing um, solo expedition person. I, I just genuinely thought it was normal and fine. Yeah. Where did the idea to go to Venezuela come from? Like, were you just perusing the internet or like, how did you, how did yeah, you say, yeah. I think there was like a, a backpacker's place that um, hooked up people who didn't speak good Spanish with this dive instructing course. And it was like, you can work at this dive shop and then they'll teach you Spanish. So I think I just found this website that was like for backpacker kids, mainly from Europe. And I was like, that sounds like fun. I'll just do that. Yeah. So, I, there so was, was really one... very little thought that went into it. Like very little. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was that one of those like setups where you, you like stay at a place, they take you scuba diving, they teach you Spanish. Like it's all like you stay there. It's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which is a good, good baby step for a first time leaving home. 18 year old girl. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I did a podcast episode of uh, School of the World, which is in Costa Rica. And I oh, was, yeah. that, that, are you familiar with it? Yeah. Do they have a no. boat? Do they have a boat? I, uh, I don't know. Okay. School of the World is, uh, yeah, he's a, he, he's a bikepacker um, that lives in Georgia really interesting story. Like I think he went to Costa Rica when he was 21 or something, you know, just, you know, a, a kid in college and ended up staying there a week. And then he went back and stayed six months. And then he went back and stayed a year and built a house by hand. And then 25 years later, he like bought this school from this guy that he knew. And now he, he owns this this school in Costa Rica and, and I, but it was completely unfamiliar to me. I'm like, Oh, there's kind of like, it's like a jumping off point. It's like kind of a, you know, it's like a built-in community where you can go. I took Spanish class. I took surfing. They introduced you to the culture. He, because we're cyclists, he like toured us around on bikes and in Costa Rica, but yeah, it was a really cool experience. I didn't even know that those existed, you know, until a couple of year, yeah, a year ago. <laughs> That's really cool. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. It's fun seeing the world. It uh once you open that uh once you open that book, it's like you just never want to put it down, I think. At least if you're the right type of person, you know, it's like it really speaks to you. Yeah, I think some people realize that they have like a nesting personality and that travel is quite stressful and draining. Um, and you can still definitely love it, but then it just makes you love your house more. Um, but then, yeah, I think there's more people that, um, that, yeah, that want to adventure, that want to explore, that want to like understand this earth that we live on and the people that we share it with. And, um, yeah, and I think it always looks really scary from the outset. And then once you start traveling, yeah, it's a, it just never stops because then you want to go back to places and there's more places. And I think you can spend your whole life. Um, and never read the whole book. I love that quote. The world <laughs> is a book. Uh, those that don't travel only read one page, I think. Yeah, that is a good one. And it's really true, I think. Yeah. How common do you think that quote is? I have an argument with a friend. Pretty common. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be on the walls of a lot of like 25-year-old bathrooms kind of thing. Of uh, of like school of the world and places like that. Yeah, it's still All right, fine. So, 
What's that? You can still say it if you want to. Oh, I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I, lo- I love that quote. I But I had never heard it until like recently. And again, I think, and I, I it's it's my girlfriend, I'll say. It wasn't just a friend. Uh, but we she's always like, it's such a basic quote. And we've <laughs> had this conversation where I'm like, I do think it speaks to me not traveling more. And like, she's like, I feel like I've seen that on the wall of like 10 different hostels that I've stayed in, you know, over, yeah, over you know, and I'm like, thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, and you're, you're around other travelers and like-minded people and it probably comes up in conversation um but me in like the armpit of texas without a strong like outdoor and traveling culture and a person who like historically hadn't really traveled outside the united states i heard that quote for the first time like a couple years ago and i was like yes that speaks to me so i'm a little basic but that's okay i'm just getting that's fine that quote is still making the rounds i think good for the quote you know, it's like it's like a good book, right? It's yeah. like why are why are classic books classic? And that's something that I've kind of like reinforced. I, I love to read. And lately I've been just like consuming all of the classics, like just reading all, you um, know. And and I'm like, damn, I mean, there's some good ass writing and good books and um, and that's the thought that like came to me is like, there's, there's a reason why these books have stood the test of time and people are still sharing them until still talking about them. And so I'll throw that quote in that umbrella as well as like, no, it stood the test of time. It's a good quote. Yeah. Yeah. yeah fair enough. All that's right. Your I'm next glad we, what's that? It's your next tattoo. Oh, you see, yeah, I got some tattoos. I got uh, Bikes for Death right there. That's I like my, that. my business card. That's if, the way to do uh, it. <laughs> whenever I meet people. And you people, never forget what you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in case I'm like, what do I? Oh, yeah, that's right. At least <laughs> right. I didn't get it on my forehead. <laughs> so let's fast forward to, uh, I want to touch on the bike touring since this is the Bikes for Death podcast. Yeah, so you, you went to university and uh, you went bike touring. So tell me a little bit about that. Like, where did the idea come from? Had you been a cyclist before? So just another crazy on a whim. Oh, I think I'm just going to get a yeah. bike and go, go ride. Oh yeah. Massive on a really dumb whim. Um, <laughs> I started running marathons and to cross and like stupid marathons, horrible. Don't do them. Um, <laughs> but to cross train for them, I was going to spin classes. And so, you know, a couple hours a week, I'm in a spin studio and um and I loved that. I had so much fun. And so I thought, and I was in my, you know, I was becoming a real hippie, of course, and thought I really want to go to the Yukon. I'd never been to the north of camp. Like I traveled Canada really well, but never the north. Um, so I knew I wanted to go to the Yukon. I wanted to go there by human power, being a little hippie. So I was like, well, I love those spin classes. I bet you I could just get a bike and do it, it'll just be exactly like that <laughs> outside. Um, so I went and bought a bike in Calgary and yeah, really didn't know anything about it. Um, I didn't have a phone at the time. So when I went to leave on the trip, I was up the night before on YouTube watching repeatedly videos, like basic videos of bike maintenance, like how to fix a puncture. I didn't know there were tubes inside of my tires when I bought the bike. They just sold me the bike. Yeah. And I didn't know they were like, I genuinely didn't know that's how the tires stayed up. I did not know anything. <laughs> So I had a awesome. handwritten note what to do if the tire went flat, like how to get the tube out and 
put in another one. And that was just in my handlebar bag, um, how to fix the bike. It was, yeah, I mean, I probably cried over something every single day on that tour because it was just so overwhelming to be so clueless. And this bike shop, I mean, yeah, they wouldn't tell me about the tubes, but they insisted I couldn't get to the Yukon unless I was clipped in. So homegirl's never been cycling before, definitely clipped me into that thing. And so I was falling off the bike all the time, like all yeah. the time, crashing the yeah. little bike. That's bad um, advice. Crash and cried my way all the way up to the Yukon. And you know, it's that's <laughs> about a month. Um, and it was amazing. Like um, I had my little tent and I loved that. I loved the Rocky Mountains so much. It's where I grew up. Um, and then I started to meet, especially once I got really far north into the Yukon, where we met up with like the Cassiar Highway. Um, and obviously a lot of bike tourists are on their way to or from Alaska that way. So then you start meeting other bike tourists on the road and I never met them before. I'd never met the bike touring scene. And then do you remember crazy guy on a bike? You remember that website? Yep. Yep. Like all we had back then. Um, so someone told me about this website. So the next time I was at, now I'm really going to sound old, an internet cafe. Cause I didn't have a phone. <laughs> and an internet cafe, I went on crazy guy on a bike. And then there was just like all these people talking about all these places all around the world that they were just traveling by their bike. They weren't taking the bus. And I was just so, it was like, I, I was like, okay, I'm home. I want to be part of this, whatever this vibe is. I still don't get this bike and how to get on and off of it without crashing. But like, I want, I want a piece of this. I want to move all day long. I want to sleep in my tent. Um, and yeah, slowly started to learn how to do the bike stuff. Was that ahead. a, was that a solo trip as well? And and how, how far, how many days was that? Yeah. So I think it was just over 2000 kilometers. Um, and yeah, it took me roughly a month. Holy yeah. shit. I have so you four were like... panniers on my bike, <laughs> like four big, pa- like I was 21. What I could afford as far as equipment goes, it's not like the nice bike packing stuff I have now. Like yeah. I just had the heaviest, dumbest crap on my bike. That is I couldn't insane. pick it up. I couldn't pick up my bike on my own without taking some panniers off. Oh, hell no. I don't. Yeah. No one could. <laughs> the world's no. strongest man probably <laughs> couldn't yeah. lift that that bike. Yeah. So I I am just I am just blown away. Like how much forethought went into that trip? Two thousand <laughs> miles. You're just like, what gave you the audacity or the bravery or the idea that like you could you could do cluelessness. That? Cluelessness is what gave it to me because if you if I knew what cycling two thousand kilometers felt like. And how long it would take. I would have never gone, but I had no idea. I just looked at the map and it was like, oh yeah, Whitehorse is about 2000 kilometers from where you are. So I was like, well, that's just, you could have just said any range of numbers and words to me right now. And I was like, well, I want to do this. I don't have a job. I've just finished school. I've got no purpose in my little life, but I own this shiny steel bicycle. And yeah, it was just, it was the cluelessness. That was the audacity. It was, I was just, I had no idea. And I had nowhere else to be. You know, I had the whole summer. It was early June that I left. So I was like, I, it doesn't really matter how long it takes. You know, I'll get there when I get there. And when I get there, I'll figure out what to do with my life. But, you know, it just, an, it just didn't really matter. That's amazing. I love that so much. I wish I had more of that. I wish I had more of that ignorance. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Ignorance is bliss. I'm up, but I know how to like read maps really well, and I know how much, and I have experience, which is useful, but it also, you know, can make you more cautious. So, yeah. you know, back then I had no experience, and and that was. But it hasn't stopped you. Going. 
It hasn't yeah. stopped you. The knowledge, all these experiences, the trials, like whatever you faced, I mean, it's, it hasn't stopped you. You've, you've kept it going like all of these years. What do you think it is about you that like has an idea to go to Venezuela or ride their bike 2000 miles up to the Yukon and with no experience, very little preparation, little very little understanding of like what it is you're actually doing like what is it about you do you think that allows you and maybe motivates you and pushes you to go and just try it i think it's curiosity i think i'm not okay with not with wondering and not getting the answer so if it you know if it comes across my mind that i'd like to go to the yukon by human power then i'll stay awake that night thinking could I? Will I? Like, what would happen? What would it be like? And I would hate to not know. Someone else is going to find out. I want to know. And the only way for me to know would be to march down to a bike shop and ask for one bicycle, please, and buy it and go ride to the Yukon. I think it's just that, um, yeah, I wouldn't be satisfied with not trying these stupid ideas that pop into my head. Where did the idea to ride to the Yukon like, did you, did you know some people that were bike tours? Like, how did you even find out that that was a thing? Or, uh, you know, you what? when I, the summer before I'd been in Banff, which is kind of close to where I grew up and I, there was a sidewalk sale and I, at an outdoor shop and I needed a tent. And the guy that I bought the tent from, he was like, this tent's really good because the poles are shorter. So you can put it in a bike pannier. And I was like, I don't know what this man has just said to me, but that sounds like the tent I need. And so I bought the tent. <laughs> And I kept on saying to people, I've got this really great tent. You can take it bike touring. And I just like, didn't even have a bike. Um, so I think I, I think I had to do it all just to take my tent on a little trip. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I still, I'm just astonished that, um, you know, That's maybe a, if you want to believe that the universe serves the things that you need, I think cycling just like made itself come to me because I definitely didn't go looking for it. I think that, I think you're right. I think you bought a great tent and you're like, all right, tent, I spent all this money on you. Like, let's see what you can do. I'm curious. (laughs) It wasn't even about you. It was about getting your tent out into the outdoors, you know, and your tent took Canadian dollars on that tent. That was a lot of money for me back then. Yeah, exactly. You can't let it sit in the closet and go to waste. You got to take it to the Yukon. There's too many tents wasting away in closets right now. People got to take their tents out. That's right. That's so funny. I posted on social media yesterday. Uh, someone posted like one of my titanium cups from Bikes for Death. And and I, you know, it's always funny. I'm like, oh, look at where my appliances are going out in nature, like living these wonderful uh, lives. And it's always nice to me whenever I see people, they take my merchandise and they take it to a beautiful view. And I'm like, a piece of me is is out there. But yeah, take your equipment outside. This isn't yeah, about really you. Fun. Yeah. Don't, don't yeah. put it in the closet. <laughs> Give it a good life. <laughs> All right. Let me ask you this question. It's kind of a fun question. By the way, oh, I wrote this down. You crashed and cried your way all the way to the Yukon, which, by the way, I think would make a great title for a next book, uh, potentially. That is good. Or, yeah. or a, a paper or an article or something like that. That was a that was a good one-liner, Jenny. You nailed I'm it. I'm sure I've never even written that before. That's amazing. I am going to remember just, that. Thank you. You just did. Yeah. Um yeah, your book is chock full of like great one-liners. So uh, I actually listened to the audiobook 
but then I bought the copy uh, because I want to read it and be able to like take notes because I was like listening on all my rides and everything. But it's we'll get into the book. But like, yeah, I, I, I was like, oh, man, I want to be like underlining shit. So I had to get a hard copy, too. All right. So this is kind of a fun question, um, but also kind of a big one. Let's say you're at a fancy, uh, let's say you're like at the pre-party for the Pulitzer Prize for your book solo and you're at the bar. Yeah, that's the dream. Uh, you're at the bar and somebody comes up to you that doesn't know you and they say, what do you do? What do you do for a living? How do you answer that question? You know, when people ask me what I do for a living, I just say I'm a writer and I hope that there are no follow-ups because I feel so silly when I say what I do for a living. Um, well, I'm going to push back. Uh, this, yeah, I am going to ask a follow-up question. Oh, really? Yeah. What else do you do? What do you write about? I said, oh, I just write about the outdoors and adventure kind of stuff. <laughs> You're going to make this tough on me, aren't you? This is how I treat people in public when they ask me what I do. <laughs> All right. Well, let's say you're on a podcast with Patrick from Bikes for Death and he asked uh, you that's what... big time. That's big time. You said it was a Pulitzer. Now all of a sudden we're on Bikes for Death. Yeah, I know. Good I had to ramp up this. You're being a difficult customer, but give <laughs> us a picture of like, I mean, introduce yourself to like people who don't, haven't heard of Jenny Tuff before. Like... How do you how do you encapsulate like all of the stuff that you do for people that aren't familiar with you? Do you think it's normal to find that a really difficult question to answer? Yeah, that's why I, I said it's kind of, of a fun question, but it's kind of a big question too. I think it's like pretty unfair, but in my defense, it's it's either I have to do it or you have to do it. And so and I think you know you're just like calling dibs on not doing it. Yeah, I'm, I'm just me. like, no, she she knows herself. She knows who she is. I'm tempted I think, to like Google myself right now and just try to remind myself what the first paragraph is of this. I think you're a you're an you are a extremely adventurous person. Like you are doing things that I had never even heard of. Like legitimately, never even heard of. Never knew it was a thing. Never knew people were doing this. You're doing world for first. You're winning bikepacking races. You're doing everything, and then there's like all the media that surrounds it. I I I feel like overwhelmed and underprepared for this conversation because like there is so much stuff out there. You've written multiple books. There's like endless videos and films that you could watch, and then like you said, you're a writer. So there's endless writing. There's like so many things that I can read. I feel like I've done so much research and just like getting to know you and reading everything and watching all the videos to prepare for this episode. There's just, it's, it's so much. So that's my stab at. I love that you did your homework, but gosh, I feel bad. (laughs) Why? A lot to take on. It's a lot of time. And this is my job. Yeah. Yeah, it's my job. And I I mean it's a pretty it's a pretty good gig, you know? Like Yeah. It, yeah, you get to speak to cool people all the time. Yeah. I listen to you on my bike packing races. Did you know that? No, so, no way. Last time I was listening to your voice, it was probably three AM in Rwanda and I was going up a hill, you were speaking to Anna Jagger. And um 
Yeah, it was just really nice to just like kind of sit. It's really nice, I think, when you're on a bikepacking event, because um, especially if you're alone and then you're just in your own head all the time. But then if you listen to a podcast about something you're actually interested in, it's kind of like you can just sit in on a conversation and you'll ask questions that I wanted asked of her and she'll talk about, especially like hearing her talk about the tour divide that she'd been successful on. And then you hear someone who's totally like jazzed about finishing races while you're currently on a race, you kind of need to hear that energy from someone who's like gone and done it. It was really nice. So thanks for that. Well, that, Oh, well, you're welcome. That is, yeah, that makes my day. Um, you know, it's like, I, it's just, it's so, it's so mind blowing. Like you just record a podcast and put it out in the universe. And you never know who's going to listen to it. And I've had so many experiences. Like I go and cover the end of the divide and so I'm just like hanging out at the end of the tour divide and like talking to all these people and like all these like people I consider famous and I like legends and I'm just like, and they're, they're telling me uh, all these episodes that they listen to. And Hey, remember yeah. that time when you interviewed this person, they talked about that. I'm like, you're blowing my mind right now that, that you're listening. So I, I appreciate that. And I'm, and mostly like, I'm, I'm so grateful that it's going out and it's doing something, you know, like it's, it's, it's being inspirational. It's helping people get through their bike rides or the bike races. Like that's the biggest payoff. Look, for... I mean, this is still a really niche sport. I mean, it feels like it's a really big sport at the moment, but actually in your day-to-day -day life, in your physical community, how many bike packers do you know? Like, oh, yeah. you know, you're, you try to speak to your friends about it. One, they're sick of it. Two, they don't understand. And then, yeah, you need these, these little community places like a podcast um, yeah. for our crazy weirdo bike packers that we are. You're absolutely right. And I think it, yeah, it, it's not so well adopted. I mean, running and you're a big runner, obviously. And th like the running community is, is a much more like, you know, there's probably a hundred different running clubs in my town, a hundred oh, exaggeration, huge, yeah. but there's a lot of running clubs, uh, you know, hardly any, cycling clubs and zero bikepacking adventure clubs, you know, I mean, it's, there's yeah, one other guy like that lives distance racing, you know, you get back down to like 500 people on the whole planet. But right. Do it, so. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. It, did I do a good enough job? I think we'll, we'll let this episode speak to who you are and people can just listen and to decide for themselves. I won't, I won't make you answer that question. I, I, I took it really well away from that. I don't know if you saw how professional that was that I just went on a totally different tangent. No, you're good. You're good. I'm going to have to keep an eye on you. <laughs> yeah. Every single question I ask you to be like, actually. <laughs> what I can tell you is do the politician thing. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Let's start with, well, I guess we've started a while ago, but let's get into your, let's get into your book solo. Um, I, I genuinely, uh, it was, it was such a great book. Um, and I have to tell you that since you're telling me you listen to me, I'm going to tell you, I listen, I listen to you too. And your book is uh, power. Like I only listened to it while I was on bike rides. I'm training for like three different races right now. And, um, so I'm, I'm kind of in training mode. And so I've been taking it as my companion and you're right. Like it is, it's super helpful to be like listening to somebody doing hard things and like overcoming things when you're in the middle of doing something, yeah. you're like, it's a, it's a really good kick in the teeth. And I have to, have you read uh, Wild? 
by Cheryl um, Strayed. Cheryl Strayed one. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Come on. Okay. I, I figured, but I didn't want to assume. But yeah. So like, I read. Factor on the demographic. Yeah. I, I, assu- I, I assume. I watched it. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, my girlfriend, so she gave it to me a, a, as a gift for a birthday present. And um, we, we kind of read it you know, at the same time. And then we just watched the movie like last week, but I just finished uh, reading wild for the first time. And that's another just amazing book. And then immediately after I read wild, I read your book and it was like wild to the extreme, you know, it was like a perfect very different character, very different character. No heroine. No heroine, maybe no sex addiction. You didn't talk about that in your no, and <laughs> no. <laughs> your but you have your own like you have your own like challenges and and things yeah. that I mean no, everybody does right. Um, but like what you know, and there are so many parallels between the two books between like being a solo female adventurer, a lot of the fears, uncertainties placating by men like all like all this was like it was like just kind of like wild 2.0 not to say it was like a carbon copy but there was just i've never been compared to cheryl Strait, and i think my imposter syndrome just exploded in the background just like oh no you. yeah i think it's on the walls back there yeah Oops. what a mess <laughs> Yeah, no, I think, I mean, how could you be imposter syndrome? Like you did all of the things that are in the book, you know, like. I know. And you wrote about it. It's always weird to me, actually, when I have to promote the book and I tell people what it's about, I'm like, wow, that's, did I really run that far? That seems like quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Did I do that? You know, you tuck those things away in the back, like especially things that were physically arduous. You know what it's like, you get home and you're like, you just tuck it away. You just kind of forget about how hard it was. And then, yeah, I mean, half of my career is I have to stand on stages and tell people about this book to convince them to buy it. And um, and sometimes, yeah, I hear the words coming out of my mouth and I'm like, gosh, did I really? That's so cool for me. <laughs> yeah. It seems really unlikely that I could accomplish that. It's it's so weird. I think we all do this. We We disassociate ourselves from our accomplishments and not only our accomplishments but the pain that was associated with them oh massively yeah and i i i i assume i i have no i'm a high school dropout again so i'm i'm just full of assumptions but that it speaks to like the evolution of our species where it's just like okay move forward move forward move forward and at the same time forget about how hard things are because if you're if you really internalize like how bad your feet hurt and how scary it was and all of the woes that come with oh fuck i ran that far and i did yeah. that for so many days if you like li- sit with that it's like you're not able to it would prevent you maybe from moving totally. forward I mean, I'm not a mother, but, you know, there are women out there who have more than one child. So they obviously found a way, you know, so it might, maybe it is um, evolutionary that we have to somehow think that hard things are fine and we'll do them again. Jenny, you took the words out of my mouth. That was the exact, <laughs> that was the exact, uh, like description or example that I was going to bring up. And the one that blows my, I'm obviously not a mother either. Uh, I have two daughters, but, and I've been on that side of uh, the pregnancy. And I've always, I've said that to like, uh, I I have two ex-wives. I'm not bragging. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
Yeah, racking them up. Uh, no more for me. That was enough. Um, but yeah. I have a yeah daughter with each each ex wife, and so like, but I've always I've said to both of them historically, I'm like, I get like having a kid once, but mm-hmm. how do you do it a second time? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that's what it is. I think we're just like we kind of evolved to have short memories for some reason. Yeah, and just look at the beautiful things that come out of it, like. In your case, daughters. In my case, really amazing memories of mountains I stood on top of and felt good about myself. Yeah, yeah. That's the other flip side of it is that you... Um, we So instead of like only focusing on the pain and how hard it was, for some reason, what like sticks with you is is like the good parts, like the views, the mountains. And, and you're like, yeah, I want to go back that. I want to go experience... I mean, thank goodness our brains work that way you know oh, imagine God, yes. well on i mean i think we dwell on mistakes but i mean dwelling on pain that'd be a, a totally different thing to have to deal with like it's it's amazing that i can finish any of these events i mean you said you're training for three ultras i mean they're you know it's that type two fun thing which maybe we've overused that term but it's so true that during the thing you're like this is awful <laughs> i can't do this and then the second you're not doing it you're like that was the best did you remember that bit where it was this and that and you're just like so jazzed about it yeah thank goodness our brains work that way oh i'm so glad it is interesting though because like as a podcaster i'm always like so tell me how hard it was and you know like tell me the worst thing that's ever happened to you or whatever i'm exaggerating slightly but you know i mean you want to you know like and not just to be like to like blow it up into this massive thing, but also to like educate people like, okay, what are you really getting yourself into when you sign up for these kinds of things? But like people have a really difficult time uh, capturing like how difficult something is, you know? And, and I agree. I think it's great because it allows us to keep pushing forward, you know? This is why this is maybe a bit of a pivot, but why I kind of hate that most of the films and media will always revolve around the people that won because people that won were the ones that didn't have a disaster. Typically, you know, they were the ones that got away with it. Like you got to speak to the people in the middle of the pack. Like they're the ones who have disasters coming left, right, and center that maybe overcame something. Like they're that's where the stories are, and that's where most of us are going to end up riding the event. So I think there, yeah, that's what I want to sign up for as a podcast that interviews just everyone, not just that like one person who just shrugs and they're like, yeah, it just worked yeah. out. I had a tailwind and I didn't get sick and. One yeah, my body worked fine. Yeah. Yeah, I exactly. got the right I'm food. Like, no, I hit all the resupply like, points. I was in Rwanda a couple of weeks ago on that race, and there was a guy in my kind of pace group who had a broken finger. He broke his finger right before the race, and we're racing on drop bar bikes, people. And he just rode the event with a splint on one hand on all this like gnarly ass gravel. And I was like, that's way cooler than the people at the front to me right now that this guy is riding this event with one hand. Like, yeah. What? What is that? I couldn't agree more. I'm definitely never going to be at the front of a race uh, for a variety of reasons. But like the most people like that listen to this podcast or do this kind of stuff. I mean, just going and doing one of these events is is huge. Right. And like just finishing it is huge. And so that's been like a real like focus of my podcast is trying to capture like the full breadth of, of the human experience and like stories through these adventure sports. And like the way I look at the top of the field is I, I like those because 
it just shows what human potential is. And I think that like when you can connect to like that, that potential, you don't have to go and win a race, but just like, Oh wow. It unlocks something in you. You're like, Oh, people, people can ride to the Yukon. People can, you know, uh, run across Kyrgyzstan completely unsupported. Like what? Like people can do that. And then if you know that you can find a way to like internalize that in your life. But I never, like, I, I never want like the podcast to be like, Oh, you should be the ultra best of the ultra, ultra, ultra fit. But I do like the, cause that's the way it works in my life is I'm like, I, I see people that do like just the most amazing, crazy things like Alex Honnold, free solo El Capitan. Fuck no, never want to do it. Scares the shit out of my problems, get sweaty just thinking about it. But holy shit, people do that? Yeah. And that's the part of it that I like. And then I try to like do episodes where like, you know, it's it's like more regular people that go and do this kind of stuff too and and yeah. share from that. I think you bring out the regular people, like Anna Jagger's episode. Um, I really liked it because she just kind of like shrugged it off that she just won the true divide. And she's like, well, I don't know. I have an active job, so I guess I'm fit. And you're like, oh, okay. She's not yeah. an elite or doesn't think she's an elite athlete, doesn't train like one, doesn't have a coach and a sponsor and all those things. She's just kind of was like, oh, I'm just fit. And I just... <laughs> Like riding my bike. You find that so much. I mean, obviously my sphere is is bike packing. Um, but I think it probably speaks to like endurance athletes as a whole that you you do see that a lot where like people can like Courtney Dewalter in the running world. Biggest I'm not, fan, I, right here, biggest fan. <laughs> I've been yeah, I don't follow her career super closely, uh, but like in the beginning, I would just remember like reading a lot about her. She was a school teacher and like training in her off time. And her diet was just like pizza and beer and chips or whatever. Like, and she was going out and just decimating the field. And I, you know, I'd be curious to get your take, but I, I wonder if it's just like with endurance sports, it's like, it really comes down to, I mean, yes, you have to be physically strong, but the mental side, it's that mental toughness that you have to tap into. And that opens up the field to anybody to be mentally tough and endure hard things. Yeah, I think it's really true. I mean, I wouldn't downplay the physical side. I mean, especially in Courtney's case, like she was, um, I don't know American terms, like a state champion cross-country ski when she was a kid. Like she she did come from background, but um, but when you hear her talk about running, um, and just using her as an example, you know, like you hear her talk about it and the mindset that she goes into it with, um, it's clear that she's not just a better runner than most people, but she can control her mind better than most people. Um, so I do think that in ultras, it's really fascinating. Um, I remember speaking to James Hayden about this once that in ultra bike packing, it's kind of like you might need five or six good skills in any normal race, like your wilderness survival, your cycling, your eating, your ability to speak the language, like whatever it is. Um, and you just go in with the skills that you have and you try to capitalize on them. Um, so I think it is a really interesting um, place to do sports. Cause if you look at, you know, the running side, we always compete in your gender and your age group um, and potentially even like your ranking in your country or whatever it is. But bikepacking, we tend to compete for one podium and there isn't even a podium there. We just, we're all kind of there at the same time. And you'll be riding along someone who's 
twice your age and someone who's much younger and people that have completely different bodies move on to people with different bikes. We're all just coming from completely different places and can kind of ride alongside each other because you just capitalize on the skill sets that you you have and focus on what you can do really well. Um, and I do think mindset is mindset makes or breaks it. Um, I think you can't win a race on mindset alone. You do have to be strong, but you absolutely can't win a race without mindset. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love, I, I just love, this is why I love endurance sports is cause I think it, it's like a great equalizer in many mm. respects because it does, you do have to tap into like the full breadth of your resources to be able to like endure to the end. And, and yeah, the storylines that come through there, like I, it's why I love endurance sports in particular. You're not just honing yeah. one skill and you're really, really good at it. You're, you're going to have like other, everybody's going to have like strong areas and weak areas and they're just going to have to manage what they have and, uh, endure yeah. to the end, you know? And, uh, yeah, I, I love it. All right. We got to talk. <laughs> We're going to talk about solo. Uh, okay. I'll let you stick to your script. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, I, no tangents are welcome. Uh, yeah, I have ADD. So like, uh, oh, well, tangents, I'm not Right. Yeah, tangents are just a part of my life. I don't even try to fight it. I just go wherever they go, and we'll we'll get there eventually. Okay. Uh, but what it, what is solo? I mean, if no one's ever read the book, like what is what is solo about? Um, I set a self led challenge to run solo and unsupported across a mountain range on every continent. Um, journey was a little over four thousand kilometers when you rack them all up. It took me five years um, to do them. I did them all kind of individually. Um, so it's it's about those six expeditions, those running expeditions where I was, yeah, unsupported in the wilderness, so carrying everything I needed and navigating these mountain ranges. Some of them were world's first expeditions. Um, so it's about, yeah, the journeys themselves and what I learned along the way and how I grew with the person. And um, yeah, that's that's what it's about. I haven't read it since I wrote it, so I don't know. You haven't? No, I did the audiobook. The audiobook was the last time that I've opened that book. Oh my god. Yeah, gosh. I'm not gonna read it. Because I can't yeah. edit it now. That's the worst thing. You once you once the publisher prints it, you gotta stick with what you said. And if you don't like it, you know, like going yeah. back and reading your own work. I heard someone uh this is a really bad analogy, but I heard someone say it's like smelling your own farts. Like <laughs> something really weird about you if you need to do that. I don't I don't go back and read my book. That is so funny. And so, yeah, I mean, I can, uh, I've had to force myself to go back and like, listen to some of my episodes. If I'm having a repeat guest on, you know, okay. I, I, some, sometimes I don't, sometimes I do, but it's like, you really have to like eat a shit sandwich to take another nasty analogy. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. You're like, Oh, fuck. It's really hard. The, diff the difference for me is like, if I, if something's like super bad, I can like actually edit it and re-upload yeah. a, a different file. Like if yeah, I said you own something, the podcast. Or, you can do what you want. I can do what I, I want. Don't I just, book. That's the yeah. worst thing people need to know about writing books. You don't own it. The publisher owns it. Once it's gone, so, it's gone. So you're like, I think I remember what's in that book, but, but I don't even yeah, know. No, people ask me really specific questions sometimes. And I'm like, did I? Oh, I don't remember did that. I do that. Did I do and that? I'm, just not, I'm not going to read it back. 
Fair enough. Yeah. I don't, I don't blame you. I'll try not to ask you any too, any, uh, too hard of questions, but like, no, go for it. It's good to challenge me. (laughs) What? And I have notes too, so I might have the answer. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. There we go. Fun quiz. Um, that that's your like elevator pitch. You said you have to get up on stage and like tell people what the book is. That's what the book is. But like the first leg of your trip was Kyrgyzstan again, like you said, some of these were world's first. Nobody has ever done it before. I'm curious, like, and and just to like elaborate that on that a little bit for the listening audience. So like when you ran across Kyrgyzstan, no one's ever done it before. And like the thing about what you did is there weren't, you weren't necessarily following like roads or trails or anything. There wasn't like a developed route. Like you literally just, I assume got on Google earth or ride with GPS or whatever app you use and like drew a line over mountains. And can you explain, can you like elaborate on like that part of the process of like what that actually looked like to run across Kyrgyzstan and how you built your routes? Yeah, it was, it was really hard at the time. Um, They've had a real tourism boom in the last few years and it would be a lot easier now, especially with the Silk Road having done like five years across it and, and Kamut now being there. But um. At the time, there weren't there weren't good maps. If you went on Kamut or Rive GPS or anything like that, it was just no data. Um, and you just didn't know what went. So I did have to use satellite, uh, yeah, Google Earth. Um, there were maps available to buy, but they were done by the Soviets who had been in power 25 years previously. So they were 25 years out of date and they were in Cyrillic, which I can kind of read, but not well enough to to navigate a whole expedition on. Um, so yeah, it was a big, I think I had several routes kind of pegged down and I was like, well, I'm just going to have to take this day by day and sometimes it's not going to work. And sometimes it really didn't work. Um, and sometimes it will, and we'll just go. And then I got there and, you know, this is a land that has nomads. And that was what attracted me to it was the nomads who live there, um, very much a life on horseback and living in yurts. These are people that don't travel by road either. So, and that's kind of something that I always tell myself about travel and people always ask like, how do you find food? How do you find where to live? And you know, just go like, if people live there, there is a way to do it. It might not be your way. It might not be a way you're comfortable with. It might not be a way that you have an app for on your phone, but it will be possible. So I knew that the nomads were there, which means there has to be a way. Um, so yeah, I was mainly on their trails and that was amazing because I went there so nervous thinking, I don't know how to get there. I've looked at the map and there's no way across this little bit and then you'd get there and there'd be lots of horse trails and they'd be very thin, hard to follow trails, but they would be there. Or you would even see a horse literally going over it and just say, okay, we'll follow him. And so it's, um, yeah, it was, it felt like playing proper explorer, which was really fun because of course, I think, I think we all dream about being explorers. And I think we all dream like we are explorers, but we know that we aren't really because the world has been discovered well and truly. Um, yeah. There's a Wikipedia page for everywhere. There's a lonely planet for everywhere. Like, you know, you're not, you're only really exploring in your own terms because someone else has already been there, but it really did feel like I got to play Explorer. I got to go somewhere without a map. Like I wasn't carrying a map because there was no point. It was really, it was really cool. It was really exciting. and really scary. It's wild. It is. It is so wild. Like, you know, another example is, um, you would just get to the base of a mountain and you just kind of eyeball 
like how to get over. Right. Like there's no, again, there's no trail, there's no mat to follow. So you're just like, I guess I'll go that way and see how it goes. And I mean, it's it's, comfortable with site navigation and site navigation when it works in the mountains is, is really, really fun. And I feel like no one's ever encouraged to do it because it's not like the super safe nerdy way you're meant to have a map and compass at all times. But yeah, there is no map like it was in days of old, <laughs> then yeah. yeah, site navigation is really fun. How common, again, I ne- I've never heard of anybody doing this. Is this, is this, is there a whole nother niche sport of people that are, uh, fast packing, uh, across continents or across mountain ranges without maps, without, uh, without roads? Like, is this a, is this a thing that I just don't even know about? It's definitely becoming a thing. And I think when I did that first one, we didn't even call it fast backing because no one knew this was just like idiots who didn't know how to backpack, right? <laughs> just, <laughs> like it just didn't exist. And But now it's definitely becoming a thing. Now there are, you know, products you, you can buy a fast packing backpack. Like these things mm. do exist now. Um, and yeah, there are, there are crazy kids out there crossing entire countries. Um, it's typically like in Europe, especially where there's a lot of wilderness routes are only three or four days long. Um, it's becoming a real sport amongst the the trail runners and the hikers in Europe to to go fast packing over the weekend. It's really fun. Um, so yeah, it's it's becoming a thing. It's far behind bike packing in terms of um, how popular it is and how many products you can buy for it and stuff. But it's becoming a thing. It wasn't then, but it's getting there. I'm starting to feel normal. Yeah. It's it again, it's just another iteration of you going into the unknown, uh, literally, but also into like an unknown uh like genre of the sport. How but that one how was did, really freeing about it because there were no rules. You know, yeah. like if you come from cycling, there are rules, man. Like cycling has way too many rules and they need to F off. But like fast packing, <laughs> it didn't even have a name. There were no rules at all. I just had to figure it out for myself. So like I got to make it all up as I went. And it's so wild to look back because now I know exactly how I would pack and I'm really like confident in how to do this. But back then I was like, I don't know. And I would just try using trekking poles and figure out because it's very different if you run with poles versus walk with them. And I just tried to decide what type of equipment I would like. Do I want a tent? No tent. Like I just had to do lots of experiments. There was no one I could ask. I couldn't Google it. There was I think there was a Reddit, there was a subreddit had, I think, 30 people on it. (laughs) It Wow. Yeah, it just wasn't cool. There was just no one I could ask. So I just, I got to make up all my own rules and just do it the way that I wanted. And then when I went out to actually do it and start crossing these mountain ranges, you know, I'm alone in really big wilderness. It's a very freeing space where you're just like, well, okay, what would make sense for me? Let's not think about how you're meant to do this because there is no guidebook. What would make sense for me? What would feel good? What, yeah. what would be safe? What would, you know, what would work? Man, to hear you talk about it, it makes perfect sense. But like in our world, it seems, I don't want to say crazy, but <laughs> it's, it's wild. <laughs> it seems crazy. I mean, because, you know, speaking back to like, you know, go to school, get the job, get, get the husband or wife, you know, have the kid there's, there's always rules. Like you said, in cycling, like there's all these rules, there's events and you start with running around your neighborhood and then you do a half marathon, then you do a full marathon. Like there are just 
systems and and rules and and whether they're like really strict or not, there's just the way people do things, right? It's just like the way people do these. And what you did, it makes perfect sense. Like, man, I just want to go have fun and and experience it any way I want to. I don't want any rules, which which really like speaks to me. I'm like, yes, but also you know, there's just a, a lot of fear and uncertainty that comes with that level of ex- yeah. exploration, you know? I've always said that adventure is creative or it should be creative. So if you think of it as a creative pursuit and you think of your adventure, your time, what you're going to do as a blank canvas that you get to draw. And of course, you're going to get inspiration from other creatives before you, like Miles Arbor, Right. So the best routes in the world, that's where you should just start. Like just go to bikepacking.com and like start with some ideas and then, and then draw your own thing, you know, like create for yourself. I think adventure should be creative. I don't think it should be competitive as it usually is. I know that we're going to talk about racing. So maybe sometimes, but like, you know, if you're going to do an expedition, think of it as a creative pursuit. Yeah. I really like that. And I, I, I like the, um, like diversity and the creativity. I think that like you spoke to it, uh, that's in bike packing. There is no like governing body. People are on all kinds of bikes with all kinds of, you know, wearing yeah. whatever. And like, it, it does. We have to keep that spirit alive. You guys, yes. like bike packing guys, when you're commenting on the forums, what someone else is riding in some race, just piss off. It's fun if we all do it our own way. I, that's, that is my, uh, not a mantra, but that's what I preach is like, it is, is the uniqueness and the individuality that is currently in this sport. And I'm with you. I mean, Gus Morton said on the podcast, like the good thing is, is like, there's passionate people who are like passionate enough to argue about it. But like at the same time, yeah, it's great that there's so much passion, but like we can't tell people how to recreate outside. Like we need oh. to really, really, really praise people for going and running across Kyrgyzstan for the first time uh, without, you know, it's like, just go do that. And like, it doesn't have to fall into any category and it doesn't have to be an official time. One of your quotes from your book that I just remembered uh, you may not even know this is in there, but it says something like adventures don't need to be measured. They just need to be experienced. Oh, that sounds like that? me. <laughs> that sounds like just the thing I would say. <laughs> yeah, which is great. And like, to your point about like racing and stuff, obviously like there's, there's people who like really care about winning and stuff, but like you can't go and ride a thousand miles on a bike without a really strong like internal passion for like the outdoors and like self propelled uh, human power and all this stuff. Like it's not just, Oh, I want to win. Cause there's so many factors. There's the weather and there's knee yeah. pain and there's mechanicals and things that can come up. Like all, all these challenges that arise, like it can't just be about like winning. I don't think like there's, but we don't even get anything for winning. Like there's no right. money in bikepacking. So just right. like time. Yeah. There's definitely no money in bikepacking for sure. <laughs> it, uh, it's just so, I, I just love it. I love what you did because as a cyclist, 
Um, and I'm a, I'm a hardcore cyclist. Like I, I just started hiking recently, but I, my Uh only claim to fame with running is I've done a half marathon trail run and then I quit. I'm like, okay, that was good. Yeah. It's not for everyone. I do. I do acknowledge that a lot of one's going to like running, but the good Uh thing, the, the, the thing that like, I like about like cycling is narrow-minded and like you have to, well, yeah, it's not narrow-minded, but it's just limited to roads and trails. Otherwise yeah. you're just hiking your bike. But the really cool thing about what you did is that on foot, it's literally, I mean, you're uh, just walking across a field or running across a field and then swimming across a river and then climbing a mountain. And there doesn't need to be any, any limitations other than like your own physical ability, which is, just like a really, to me, like a mind blowing concept. I'm like, Oh, it's why I started hiking. Cause I'm like, Oh, well there's places bikes can't go that I want to get to. And I used to be like, really, I used to be a problem. Like if people are like, Oh, let's go to this place. And I'm like, and they're like, let's do this, 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 this. And I'm like, you didn't say bike one single time. And that whole five sentences I'm out yeah I am out like I am not I can't listen I'm not interested and I'm trying to I've I've been like shifting that perspective and like stretching stretching out but you know what you're about you like your bike I think it's fine I do but the world is big and I want to experience it all and like it's the same thing as like travel is like you know it all, it's all good. And and the really yeah. the thing is, is like the outdoor experience, uh, immersion in nature, um, self-reliance, like all those things are, are what really like speak to me and bikes just happen to be my favorite modality. But, um, so with that said, like, I'm really unfamiliar with the sport of running and I don't know how much of my audience is like tuned into like what you did, but can you break down, I mean, and even like fast packing is new, but like what is fast packing uh, as just like a baseline understanding for what it is you did? It's really the same as bike packing without the bike and without any mechanicals. So your backpack <laughs> is going to carry all the same stuff. You know, I was in a lightweight bivy most of the time, um, lightweight stove, some dehydrated, um, and then, yeah, no tools. <laughs> nothing's going to break except for your feet. Um, just duct tape for your feet. Duct tape for the feet, my friends. Top advice. Um, yeah, so it's it's basically that. And then, again, no rules. Like, you just – you want to go as lightweight as possible and you want to move as fast as possible. And what that means for each individual can and should totally vary. So it's it's very much like bikepacking in that sense that I think bikepackers – differentiate themselves from bike touring that they just say it's more about the ethos of traveling lighter and going faster and further and all those kind of things and it's that's kind of fast packing versus long distance hiking is we just try to pack lighter and we try to move faster um you run as much as you can but there's obviously plenty of walking especially when i'm involved (laughs) you took the question right out of my head so (laughs) when i was reading your book or listening to your book I, that was one of the questions I had, like, how much is she actually running? And I'm not trying to like throw shade, but just like a thousand kilometers is a long time over, you know, mountains and rivers and everything. Like how much of it are you like running and how much of it is like a fast walk? Say the uphills are all walked. No ultra runner runs uphills. Maybe Courtney does, but no one really. Yeah. So you walk up the hills, sprint down them and then everything in between, you just 
Yeah, kind of just go with the body. And that was why I, I tried to kick off about not looking at my watch too much and worrying about what pace I was doing. Is you know, sometimes you run really well, sometimes it's a speed walk, sometimes you feel absolutely miserable and you barely move. Um, yeah, and that's I think those are the moments where I miss the bike the most because the bike, in order to keep that thing upright, you have to keep going. Like there's no you know, if you're fast packing and you get tired, you could just say, well, I'll just walk for a little bit. <laughs> but like on your bike, you don't have that choice. You know, you gotta, you gotta keep moving. And I think that unless there's keeps... a downhill, then you get to coast and the downhill, you get to like have a snack and sit back and enjoy, enjoy some bumps. But, um, yeah, it's quite different in that sense. You do get to manage your pace a lot easier. Um, but yeah, I, I would, I would definitely walk. I would try to, I think it was more important to me always that I wanted to do these big days in terms of hours. So even though I could cover a bigger distance really fast, if I just belted it and just ran really well, um, I think I preferred to just kind of have a big long day out in the mountains because that's what makes me feel really good. So I would kind of try to move at a more sustainable pace, which would be obviously a lot slower and take big walking breaks or swimming breaks even sometimes you no rules you can do whatever you want no rules what were your goals for was it always going to be six con you know running across like six continents like was that always the plan like what were your goals with with this huge project um so i just wanted or to run across Kyrgyzstan. Multi- um you know i found out about this country called Kyrgyzstan. And then I was, I was really obsessed. I would, I was living in Scotland then as well. And I just, I love Scotland, but I miss the mountains. I miss the big proper mountains. Um, and so it was kind of about, and a curiosity in myself that mountains are always where I felt at home because home is never, I'm not used to having a physical home. I've traveled quite a lot in my life and moved around and my parents are from different places. So we never were raised with, a sense of physical home. Um, but I always found that mountains give me that kind of peaceful feeling. Mm. So it was kind of a curiosity that I thought, what if I went to the Tian Shan mountains where I don't speak the language, where I don't know how to get around, where everything's completely different. Am I still going to feel that? Um, and it just kind of spun out of control. I think I was looking at these mountains. <laughs> I think I had the map open on my computer, just sat there on the couch with a glass of wine in hand, looking at this map. And, you know, when you kind of scroll around maps and you think, oh, how would I cross it? And I think I originally was going to cycle. And then I was like, oh, it's only a thousand kilometers across. If I went on my bike, you know, if I flew all that way and I only cycled a thousand kilometers, what a shame. I should slow this down. And, you know, the glass of wine convinced me that I should, should try and run it. So it was only ever going to be that. It was just going to be the hardest thing I ever did in my life. And then I could say, wow, look at me. Um, but I got back after doing it and it was so much harder than I thought it was going to be. And then, and then I got really depressed and I was in a really, really low period. And like physically I was messed up. I could not run. I could not ride. My legs were little twigs that couldn't carry me. Um, you know, I'd really, so I didn't have my normal pillar of mental health, which was to just go for a run up until that point in my life. I had no other way to treat my mental health except for go for a run. Um, and then I was at this festival giving a talk about my amazing run across Kyrgyzstan, which I, you know, I was so bummed about now. And, and someone <laughs> else said to me, she just said, oh, how are your post-adventure blues going? And I had never heard the term post-adventure blues. And it was just like, suddenly I went, that's it. 
that's exactly what I'm feeling right now. That's why I'm sad. It's because I just had this amazing time where I was moving my body. I was outside. I was out of my comfort zone. I was sleeping in a different place every night. I was seeing all these amazing things, feeling great. And now I'm, you know, in four walls and I'm in Edinburgh where it rains all the time and blah, blah, blah. And, um, yeah. And then I realized that's all it was. And so the cure, of course, it's just plan, open the map and say, well, what's next? Like this one adventure that you did, it's not the end of you. It's not, you know, when people talk about once in a lifetime trips, that's just setting yourself up for feeling so bummed when it's over because you only, you, you said there was only one in a lifetime. Yeah. So I, once I said, okay, well, that's not once in a lifetime. What if we did it again? And, you know, got out the glass of wine and the maps again <laughs> and um, made a list of mountain ranges I wanted to do. And there were so many, I mean, there are so many more mountain ranges than I think I really, cause you think about the big ones, but you don't think about all the little ones. And, um, and so I thought, okay, if I just do one on each continent, then that would whittle this list down to like a good six. And then that seems achievable and it gives me a purpose. And then I like, no, you know, then it's a thing rather than people saying like, Jenny, what are you up to these days? Are you having a little breakdown? And I go, Oh yeah, I just go on these trips where I just run around. No, now I like have a project that I can tell people I'm, I'm running across a mountain range on every continent. It sounds like a thing. I made it up, but it's still a thing. <laughs> It sounds like a thing. It is. Yeah. It is a thing. Was it always your intention to write a book about it? Uh, I think I assumed I would just because I am a natural writer. So even if I'm not, even if I don't have a commission to write for someone, I will write the trip anyways. It's how I process. When I mm. got home from all those trips, I sat in front of my laptop for days on end and just let it out onto the page what I had gone through and what I had experienced. And it was yeah, it was just kind of the way I processed. So I think I assumed or hoped that at one point I would, but I wasn't cocky enough to know, know that I could. And that would be like, I had anything worthwhile sharing. Cause like, I'm going to admit, I don't really like the genre of adventure books very much. Um, <laughs> a lot of them just tend to be like trip diaries, which is fine, you know, but a lot of them are, you know, they're, they're just about someone's holiday. Like, cause then ultimately I know it's an expedition. I had this amazing thing. No one had done it, but like, ultimately it was my holiday. It was the thing that I wanted to do. Yeah. That I did. And how do you make that special for other people? And I think that's why I don't like the adventure genre very much is that, Oh, I feel really bad saying that. I'm not going to name any names. I just think a lot of them just are these trip diaries about someone else. having a nice time. Um, I'll make you feel better and echo what you're saying that I too find them hard to ingest uh quite i have quite a few on my bookshelf that haven't been read and maybe never will and i won't say any names either and it's not throwing shade i think you know we can both admit like those have an audience that love them and and they do a lot yeah. of good in the world I think but if you they are can... adventurous it makes it hard because you're like well i want to do that like and i could do that and i will do that so now i don't know why i'm reading about it and not just doing it yeah. But you gotta, you know, you gotta make it about something. And I think that was um I think that was the only thing I wanted to write about. Cause yeah, like otherwise it's just a million times, and there's probably a lot of passages in the book where it's like once again she rolls up her bivy and starts running on sore legs. Like every day starts that way. It gets boring really quickly. Your book was excellent though. I really I I we're we gonna be honest all now. It's, five star reviews, Patrick. I know I, I am gonna I haven't yet, but I was uh I was on I was researching for this and I was like on your Amazon I, I was like okay I need to I need to I made a mental note. I haven't done it yet, but I am gonna do a five star review. Apparently that's the only way to sell books these days is five star Amazon reviews. 
So. And if and if you'll after this episode, if you think it goes well, if you would give uh, Bikes for Death a five star review, we I would think appreciate I already it. have. I'm gonna go with I already have, but I will. Dang. Apparently, they expire, and you can do it again. So all right, you get an A plus. I'll. Yeah. Uh, I I got some work to do, but I I really did enjoy your book, and I do. That's one of the things that I'm like. You know, I mean, Cheryl Stray did it well. Is like it wasn't just about her adventure, yeah. and like you really tied in. Uh, you know, a lot of your personal stuff, the culture, and then the other, the other thing, like what you were, the thing that you were doing was so crazy that it was worth, I use that word again, crazy, but it's just so outside of like my personal, what my worldview was and what I thought was possible and what people were doing. And so there was a lot to write about, you know, there was a lot of yeah. crazy, crazy stuff that, it's not like you were the third or the 10th person to go do this thing. And then they're like, Oh, here's my experience doing this thing. You were the first person to run across Kyrgyzstan and to write about it. And so it's like, it's just uncharted waters, you know? So, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, it makes it hard. Actually, everyone, you know, you book a motivational speaker for your event. Everyone wants someone that's climbed Everest because everyone knows what that is. That's actually the yeah. better advice I could give to the listeners. The better career move is to just climb Everest. It's boring as all and, shit, but that's yeah, that's where the career is. People understand that. No one understands running solo and unsupported across Kyrgyzstan. It takes too long to say. Yeah. So like when you go and talk to an audience first, you have to like, I mean, we're doing it on this podcast. Like, wait, you did what? Like, you have to yeah, like Yeah, you have explain. to spend five minutes just on slides of maps and backpack and just try to explain. <laughs> it's really yeah. hard. Yeah, yeah. Well, luckily, this is a long-form podcast, so we have time yeah. to explain things. Uh, and I think we have a pretty uh, pretty fertile audience for this type of adventure. Um, yeah, we're in, our, we're in our crowd here. Yeah, I think. we're in our Big crowd. Space. I want to... I'm really curious, like there was just so many stories in your book about real challenges, like real challenges with nature, with your body, with, uh, with the people that you met along the way, both positive and negative. I mean, it, yeah. I, I, I wonder, like I have a, a bunch of examples written down what are some examples that stand out to you of being like the most, what was the most challenging part of, of it? That's a big question. I think, I think the most challenging part is doubt and that comes from everywhere. You know, when I started it, I didn't have that much doubt. I knew it would be really hard, but I was like, ultimately it's just running. And again, same with, you know, my first ever adventure is like, it doesn't matter how long it takes me. Like I'll get there when I get there, right foot, left foot, you know, it's fine. And then when I started telling people what I was going to do, there was just this wash of doubt on everyone's face and people that I had just met or people that were really close to me really broke my heart so many times telling me that I was, you know, I was being too much of a dreamer on this one. And it was right before I went, I was actually at an adventure festival in London and, um, and a, a podcaster who I will not name said to me, or she was like, Oh, what are, you, what are you doing for the rest of the summer? I said, oh, I'm flying to Bishkek tomorrow. I'm going to run across Kyrgyzstan. And she literally said, You know what? Some of the best stories come out of failure. 
Like those were parting words. And like, so these were, this was kind of how I was treated when I first did it. And then of course I got to Kyrgyzstan and it, and it was way worse. Everyone, I mean, Kyrgyzstan, I love, I've obviously been there three times and I will keep going back nicest people on the planet, but they were so adamant that I would fail and I would hurt myself trying. And so everywhere you go, there's just all this doubt. And so kind of throughout the entire, you know, five years of me doing this project, it was doubt from other people. And then there was a lot of moments in there in the book in pretty raw honesty that there was a lot of doubt that came from me about my own abilities. And, you know, when you're feeling that fragile doubt of yourself and then the world around you is like, you personally can't do this. Women cannot do this. Also, no one's ever done this. So no one can do this. And like, that's just all you're getting all the time is this doubt. It's really hard to make the legs work when the mind is just hearing all this no, all this doubt, all this negativity. One of the parts of the book that really like stands out is uh, your experience in Morocco with like the government and I mean, it is, you have to read the book to fully like understand what that was like. And even that probably doesn't tell the full story, but can you share like what that experience was like? Was the first time that you, that the government, the police people like came up on you? Was that when you were at the camp and you had like, yeah. before long, yeah, you had like a, a surrounded you in the middle of nowhere? Middle of actual nowhere. There wasn't even a road. Um, and I was on night five of my expedition in the Atlas Mountains. And I was in my bivy and I was so happy. I mean, if you slept under the stars, I know that you'll have a lot of Atlas race listeners. Um, and I have to be really clear before I say all this. I was so nervous about that chapter because I do love Morocco and Moroccans. And, you know, there was for every person that made the experience really challenging there were five that made it beautiful and and i do also have to just kind of aside because this is a bikes podcast so let's remember i did do the atlas mountain race and yeah. that was a very healing journey for me in morocco because then i went back with 250 cyclists and suddenly i wasn't this lone girl that was a target of everyone i was just i just got to fit in and i just got to experience yeah. being in those mountains just with all my cycling friends but anyway so it's on five night five of this expedition lying in my bivy in the middle of the night, these two Jeeps show up and I look up at 10 guys and, you know, in hindsight, I'm so flattered. They thought it would take 10 of them to take me down, but <laughs> 10 men with guns just shouting at me in both Arabic and French and trying to get me into one of the vehicles and they weren't marked vehicles. So I didn't know that they were the gendarmerie. Um, so all I know is that I'm lying in my sleeping bag and 10 guys with guns are telling me to get in their car. And that's, you know, every woman's worst fear about going wild camping just realized. Um, but it did transpire that they were the gendarmerie. They'd somehow found out what I was doing and they just didn't like it because they felt very strongly that, again, I wouldn't succeed. You know, women can't do stuff. And it made them very afraid to see me doing that. And so they were very hell-bent on stopping me, um, not out of any animosity, but out of like paternal love that they just didn't want me to get hurt. And so there was this huge culture clash that took course over the next couple of weeks of these guys following me and chasing me and monitoring me and never giving me a moment of privacy and, you know, really impacting my experience with the local Berbers. Um, and I just, you know, where I come from, women are allowed privacy and freedom and they're allowed to do stuff and you're not meant to hold people back from their dreams. And so there's this huge culture clash. 
And it was it was really, really hard. And it was a lot to untangle in my own mind because I would sometimes be so angry at them that they were so in my way. But then I would meet them all as individuals and each single one of them would be this lovely man who just didn't want me to get hurt. And the outcome was um, was them very much ruining my experience and and very much getting in my way and telling me all the time that I'm I'm going to die, which you know I didn't love. But um, yeah, yeah, it was it was really it was a lot to figure out um, how to yeah. how to that one as a person. It was insane. Like they were tracking you down in huts and, you know, they would sleep outside and wait for you. And then they would run with yeah. you on the trail or behind you on the trail. I mean, they were stalking you. They were, they were yeah, stalking they were. you. And I got really good by the end. They eventually figured out the mileage as I was doing, they couldn't actually handle. So they started putting down relay teams and they'd be like recruits from the police camps. So they'd be like young guys that could keep up. Um, and it was amazing. I watched them. There was this one day, I remember it so well, cause they had a really well-executed relay team. Like there was a support vehicle and one man would run behind me for a long time until he was tired and the next man. But like most of them were really disorganized. I had to give one of them my water once and I was so pissed off. It was like, don't yeah. follow me into the desert if you don't know how to run out here. Like, yeah, yeah. it was, and, and you know, and, and let's not beat around the bush. There was, there are legitimate concerns. Like North Africa is one of the worst places on the world to be a woman. It is a really hard place. Um, and that was a lot of my motivation for being there was, you know, I am a feminist and I talk all the time about women's rights and going into a place where I daily met women who were extremely held back in their lives, where they don't can't even dream of the level of rights that I have. And when the police weren't around, I did have some really uncomfortable experiences with, with the men. And I know that women who have raced the AMR, um, the race director does give everyone my email address if they ever want to talk to me about that. But, you know, things do happen. It's not... It's not easy. It's not amazing. So there were legitimate concerns and there were legitimate moments that uh, were quite frightening. But yeah, the, the the monitoring, the supervision, it wasn't wasn't for me. I like the mountains because I'm an introvert. I don't like to be watched. Yeah, I mean, nobody would like that. Um, yeah, and and being a, a female on top of it is uh, just extra cautionary and scary and and um it's it's just crazy how much you were dealing with through your trip that was outside of just running and and climbing a mountain mm -hmm. like you had so many other like hurdles to to tackle and i'm wondering like w what was was like that aspect of it the hardest part is like overcoming that. And then running was kind of just like, okay, I'm free. I can go and I can go and run and enjoy it. Yeah. yeah I always said the running was kind of the holiday within it. Cause one running is the thing I'm most confident on. I've been doing it forever and it's super easy. We can all do it. Right. Foot left foot keep repeat. Um, so it was the part that I didn't really have to think about. And I always found it really weird and jarring when I got home and people go, Oh my gosh, how far did you run? And I would say, you know, oh, that one was 800 kilometers or something and they go oh my god and they want to break that down to how many marathons it is and i'm like whoa, whoa, whoa that's not interesting it's really not interesting it's not the hardest part you wouldn't believe like how hard it was to find water every day like i would have died if i didn't find it and yeah it's um and you know i said earlier that running was always the pillar of my mental health it was you know the first place i discovered to um clear my head and so it was amazing on these expeditions that can be so stressful and so scary. And there's so many things you have to manage. And if you get any of them wrong, you do genuinely maybe die. But between all that, I got to go on some amazing mountain runs on some of the best trails I've ever found. 
That's a happy spin on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the book isn't uh, all like sad and scary stuff. There's, I do, I think I'm happy quite a few times in it. Yeah. But uh, what I, yeah, what I really liked about it was I, I liked how authentic you were um, when you're writing and like really shared your own personal experience, uh, both with yourself and with, uh, nature and the trail and, and the people you came in contact with. I think it's a, an honest telling. Um, and it really like takes you for a ride, uh, a ride, uh, to use a pun, but like, um, I really, I hope people like will read the book after this because like, the thing, the thing, like just taking Kyrgyzstan, for example, there's no, uh, no emergency response, right? Like you're just, there's no, nobody, in the whole country. there's nobody that you can call and you're in an unfamiliar area, just no roads, no nothing. You're running out of water. I mean, there was a, a long period there where you had no water, which is very, very, very triggering for me. I didn't. Oh no. It, Cheryl Strait had a part in her book where she ran out of water. Oh, it's fine. I just I, like that's my biggest fear is like running out of water. And then you have this experience where you almost die on the mountain mm -hmm. and you just keep going. And I, I mean, there's just so many examples, so many examples throughout the book of of course things are going to go wrong and of course things are going to be hard, but I mean, you almost drowned in a river. You almost died on a mountain. You had all these interactions with humans that were scary and unfamiliar and unknown. And I just kept reflecting on, as I was reading the book, like, how is she still going? Why I would have quit. Well, maybe, yeah. I know why. I think I do. Well, maybe I can't speak to you, but I can I can understand the desire, like the why you want to keep going. Like you want to see it. You want to do it. You want to push yourself. But I would have quit like 50 different ways by Sunday, you know, on, <laughs> on a lot of these things that come up and like you just keep going. And it, there, there's never an easy leg of the trip. I mean, through the whole six-year yeah. project, I mean, everyone is riddled with their own like challenges and uh, and and yeah, challenges. And like, I that's my question: is like, what? How did you keep going? How did you convince yourself after you had a near death experience on this mountain? a legitimate near-death experience. I don't think that was hyper, hyper, hyperbole for the book. Like, I think yeah, you were really... It really was. It was a real yeah, one. And then you just, like, keep going. It seemed like in the book, you're just like, do-do-do, okay, shake it off, do my pony. You said, like, I think you tightened your ponytail and yeah. <laughs> and you were off. Like, how did you keep finding the will and the the courageousness to like just keep going after like the guys in Morocco that were following you. I mean, it was just such a drag, but you just yeah. endured it. You endured it. You endured it. How? How the heck? I think I put myself in the position that I had to. Um, one, there's like you want to quit. Fine. How? How are you going to get out? You're like when I had that near death problem in Kyrgyzstan. You know, I figured I was two or three days of steady running to the next paved road where I could thumb a ride to get, you know, a, about 12, 15 hour bus ride back to Bishkek to get a flight home. Like that was what I was looking at for quitting. So it's not like an easy job. And I think I had said I was going to quit. But by the time that those couple days of running 
to get anywhere out of that spot were over, you know, I'd been running all that time and I was happy again and everything was fine. And so I really put myself in that position and, and also don't take it for granted that I got to do these things. Um, you know, Morocco was, was really stressful, but at the time I was really busy with work and I had carved out an entire month of my life and my fitness and everything to spend a whole month in Morocco. And I thought, you know, if I fail, I don't know when the next time is that I'm going to be able to take off a month and fly to Morocco. And hmm. same with Bolivia, I had hape, which is, um, you know, when your lungs are basically are drowning from the inside because of altitude sickness. So it would have been a good idea to quit, but I, I was really, you know, you're there and there are glaciers right in front of you, reminding you that you flying here did come at a cost. And I was like, gosh, if I fail, I can't face flying across the world again just because I failed and I have to keep on trying. You know, it's not fair. And so I really, um, yeah, I really put myself in a position that all of them had to be successful. And, you know, yeah, I think I just, and I really wanted it. And I know that there were these really scary, horrible moments, but in between all of it, I was so comfortable and I was so content and I was doing the thing that I really loved doing and I knew that I belonged where I was you know as yeah as awful and stressful as things could get at the same time I felt like the best version of myself you know I didn't want to quit and go home because I was like this is this is where I should be right now this is what I like to do yeah you don't want to go home and get those post-adventure blues no exactly that, that's all go that's home, waiting for you at home the couch, drinking your wine what that's not what i want i want to be out here in my bivy sack shivering yeah yeah it's just it's amazing you let's see another quote from you i'm gonna have so many notes i wonder if ah mm-hmm. uh, with anything hard always know your why mm. that was actually from your Substack that you wrote hey uh, did i write that last week you did. You just wrote that. You're so good. You don't even know it. You're banging out the one-liners. And obviously like to get through all this stuff, you had, you had your own why. Do you mm-hmm. know what that why was? I think it it would evolve and there'd be like micro sure. of you yeah. know what I wanted. Um, I think I really wanted to know if I could. You know, I really wanted to know what I was made of. Um, you know, I carry around the, the name Tough. People ask me all the time. So PSA, Tough is my real name. It's pronounced Tuch in Scotland. But yeah, my name is Tough. <laughs> and you carry that around as this badge and everyone that you meet is like, well, are you really tough? I need to know. Am I really tough? You know, I, I have to find out. Yeah. I was I was recording a segment for the podcast, like a, a patron uh, episode. And I, I said this, like I've, in the last like year and a half, I've lost 25 pounds. I've just been through like changed my relationship with alcohol, get off SSRIs. Like I've just been through this huge shift and transformation. And now I'm signed up for the, and they're not all ultras, by the way, I'm doing mid South and then Ozark despair and then, um, AZT 300. And so, but that's what I was saying to my audience is like, yeah, it's like, okay, now, you know, now I want to find out, where I'm at, you know, like, and the only way to really test yourself and find out where you're at and who you are is to put yourself in some pretty crazy, like put yourself in a situation that's like, 
where you have to rely on yourself. There's yeah. no, there's, there's no, not another other option. Now, I mean, obviously like I could call somebody like you were in Kyrgyzstan where like, there's literally no, no other option and all these yeah. other places where you're like, okay, well I'm actually just out in here and I have to rely on myself. But, um, but yeah, like that's the thing is like you, there's that, there's that question for a certain type of people, it's like you want to find out who you are and this is one way to do it. And you, you're alone with your thoughts. You have to rely on yourself. And then when you rely on yourself, you have to step up to the plate and then you step up to the plate and you're like, oh, I did that. Now I can trust myself a little bit more. And it's like through that process that we grow, I guess, you know, it's, it's really... Exactly. I've always talked about your comfort zone being a fluid line that, you know, what you're comfortable of with right now, where your comfort zone is, that's not fixed. You can meet the edge of that. And every time that you meet the edge of it, you push it back. And then, you know, you push it back and back and back over all these things that you do in your life. And then more of the world is available to you because you've got this really expanded comfort zone. You're just, yeah, like you say, you trust yourself more. And that's, that's such a good thing. And you carry that in your life. That's not just a cycling thing that is just in this one niche world. Like that's about who you are and the type of relationships you get into and what you do with your work and your creativity. Like it carries through your whole life. So yeah, I think it's really valuable for people to to test themselves this way and find out yeah. what they're made of. Yeah. I love that. I talk about that, um, about how, yeah, you, you kind of like, you learn to trust yourself or rely on yourself and you realize how capable you are and then you can take that and apply that to any and every area of your life. Like, it's not just like, oh, I only go and ride a long distance and fix my bike. But it's like, well, fuck, if I can do that, I mean, yeah. if I can do that, if I can run across Kyrgyzstan, like, what else can I do? And yeah, it, it, yeah it, like you said, it unlocks, it kind of unlocks more of the world. Um, yeah. And then, then you just, you can do anything you want. You yeah. can fly if you want to. <laughs> I w- you try first. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. Smart. <laughs> All right. Well, I wonder how much of my cycling audience is still sticking around. Let's uh, yeah. we can talk about bikes. We can talk about bikes. We can talk about bikes for a little bit. Uh, Because the, the crazy thing is, is like while you're doing this huge running project, you're also competing in bikepacking ultra races and winning bikepacking ultra races. So like I, I might have missed some, but I know in... So in 2018, you won Silk Road Mountain Bike Race. In 2020, you won Atlas Mountain Race. And then in 2021, you won Silk Road Mountain Race. And so like while you were, you know, you'd go ride Kyrgyzstan and then you would go back two years later. So and then you or you would run and then you would go back and ride it. And so you were getting this not not only are you doing like these crazy, I keep saying crazy, but these like really big expedition runs um, and at the same time you're competing in ultra bikepacking and doing quite well. And so I guess like when, so you went on your bike tour, but like, when did you get interested in bikepack racing and when did that come into the confluence of your ultra endurance life? Yeah. I'm not sure where it first came up, but I, I moved to Scotland and 
um, this is when my call was live and really promoting the TCR. And so kind of everyone that was into bike packing was also very interested in, in anything that my call was making. And, and I think that's where I kind of came across my desk at this, this activity that I love. I would go on a bike tour every summer and I go, Oh, I really love that. But what would it be like to, to do it spicy, you know, make it, make it hard. Um, and then, you know, my call, he was really great at trying to bring people into the sport. And I think that was something that um, he really set the tone for Like that was, I think a big part of his legacy in our community is that he really set an example, even though he was very elite, like a very fast bike packer that none of us could imagine. He was very big on just inviting everyone into the sport. And he was very passionate about how there weren't enough women and we should just invite all the women and let them come ride bikes with us. And, and so I think it was kind of through his work, even though I didn't know him personally, um, but just kind of like in the bikepacking sphere of the UK, it was a really embracing community. And cycling doesn't have a lot of that. I don't know if you've noticed about cycling, but they're a little bit snobby in some arenas. Um, but bikepacking, yeah, didn't have that and the races didn't. And so I, I think I just... I think I just fell into a bad crowd. I think I just met people that liked ultra cycling and I thought, well, I'll do that. So I just, yeah, I think I started, I did the, um, let's see, I started a TCR, I did not finish. And then um, I did the transatlantic way and I came second and I couldn't believe it. Like I really couldn't believe it that I had finished one and done really well. And then I think that summer I went off and did the Silk Road and again, really couldn't believe that I had won. Like, I mean, it was just so beyond what I thought I was capable of. But but I loved Kyrgyzstan. I felt confident being out in those mountains, even though I knew I was one of the worst cyclists objectively in the race. <laughs> I was like, well, I've got all the other skills and I'll just have to rock those. And, and it worked out. Yeah. So that was one of my questions is like, how much does your, uh, did your experiences like in, do you classify yourself as an ultra runner uh, yeah. or you're like an ultra, ultra yeah, runner? I think I run pretty far. I think it's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I think ultra might be a little limiting in the, in the context, like ultra yeah. running, I thought was like a hundred or 200 miles. And uh, yeah, now there's, you're like the extra ultra, but did, how did that uh, help you um, at Silk Road or just entering into bike pack racing? I think that old mindset thing um, being really important. If you do a solo expedition, the way that you have to master what goes on in your own mind to keep it moving, you know, it's it's pretty intense. And then you come to ultra racing. And then for me, it's like a party because now I'm not doing it alone. There's hundreds of other riders out there and you get to chat to them. And I never had that advantage on my solo expeditions. You know, I was out there in the wilderness thinking I might be crazy and trying to move myself forward. And then you enter a race and and yeah, there's more than a hundred other people that are just as crazy as you that want to do this stuff and you get to hang out with them and ride with them. And so, um, so I did have the mental side, I think, I don't want to say it was easy because none of it is easy, but I think I had that kind of like lockdown. I felt really good about that yeah. side. And then in races like, um, the Silk Road where your wilderness survival skills and your mountain skills play a really big role. You can't just be a good cyclist and get away with it. You have to be able to to be okay out there, you know, you're at altitude and you got the storms and it's a difficult country to understand if you've never been to Central Asia. And, and I had all that stuff really knocked down. So, um, yeah, I think if anyone did an analysis of the race, they would 
put me as my segments as some of the slowest ones. I wasn't, I didn't mountain bike at the time. This is like, I can't believe that Nelson let me enter the race. I did not mountain bike at the time. I didn't even bring a mountain bike. I went on a gravel bike. It was just like, what? I did not have a mountain bike. I, I've since learned, but um, yeah, yeah I, just, that's... I didn't have any cycling skills to rely on to get me around that course. Yeah, that's, that is so wild. And it's, I mean, it's crazy that you won it. How surprised were that you, you won it? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're, I mean, I you just, you didn't know how to mountain bike. You're not, you're a cyclist, but it's not like your main gig. And then you yeah, like walk away with the for other people. Like I got to the, <laughs> I think I found out maybe less than halfway around. I found out that I'd been in second place the whole time, like since the start. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I wonder if everyone else is okay. Like something must have happened. This can't be right. Yeah. Um, and then by the time I got to checkpoint two, I went into first place and like it was, yeah, it was really weird because I've never been in that experience before. I've never been a good athlete. I don't come from an athletic background where I'm like used to winning sports competitions. It's not a role right. I've ever been before. Um, so I think I just spent a lot of time going, me? Like, dowdy little me? me? I'm in first place in this silly, silly bike race. And I just couldn't, yeah, I couldn't believe it. And then I and then I was was really excited about the prospect of what that could mean for, for one, my own confidence, but then also, you know, I do, I'm pretty clear that I do these things um, for the women, for the girls, um, to encourage more of us to do it. And um, what does your tattoo say? You go girl. Or? You go girl. Yeah. It's on the back of my arm here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And by the way, girl is open on that tattoo. It's, it's for everyone. Yeah. Um, I just like that phrase. Um, yeah. So I think knowing that I, I could have, I could win when I kind of realized that I was very much in line to take it. Um, yeah, I got really excited, but then also had this real pressure of, you know, I've got to do this for the women out there. I got to get something on the scoreboard. Like suddenly I hadn't been racing until that point. And then I was like, Oh, I think I better try and figure out how to ride this bike a little bit faster. <laughs> make sure <laughs> I get there. Yeah. So what, what happened? I mean, that, that spurred something in you to, uh, what, like live up to these new expectations that you found yourself in kind of on accident or, or like, like what, what, yeah. What happened after that? Um, yeah, I think at that point I'd done two on foot expeditions, you know, I'd done Kyrgyzstan and Morocco and those were world's first. And then I, won the Silk Road and then I immediately went to Bolivia and, and got another world's first expedition. So very quickly, my career in the outdoor industry um, kind of came together and, you know, suddenly I was representing brands as an athlete and um, got to speak at festivals and, and got to write for magazines that I used to buy and geek out over. And so suddenly I had this career that, um, I wouldn't say suddenly because I think I worked pretty hard to get it. Like, yeah. Sounded like it started 18 in Venezuela. Yeah. You've just been. Um, yeah. So yeah, suddenly I'm in this career. Um, and yeah. And again, it was like, you got to make that meaningful. I don't want to stand up and just tell people that I had a really nice time in Kyrgyzstan and that's the end. You know, it's really important to make that meaningful for other people. And I think something that's always stuck with me is that, it took me a long time to put myself forward and try to win a race because I never believed that people like me could, you know, I was a chubby teenage girl from Alberta and I was, I was always told that, you know, this stuff wasn't for me. You know, I tried to run across Kyrgyzstan. Everyone's like, Ooh, you can't do that. 
but I did. And then I went and I won that race across Kyrgyzstan and, and no one believed that. I mean, people at the finish line literally said to me, I can't believe you did that. Like to my face, you know, people always have doubted me. And I always, yeah. So I think I have made a lot of what I do about, there are 16 year old girls out there right now who are exactly the way that I was. And you know, they might love the outdoors, but they might not think that they belong here. They might love bikes, but they think they'll be laughed out of the place because, you know, they don't have the right body type or whatever it is. Um, and so I try to make what I do worthwhile for them to make sure that everyone knows that, you know, they you do belong here and that you should do this stuff. And it's really exciting and it's really hard, but you'll grow so much. And um, and yeah, that's kind of been my focus ever since. I've gone on a real tangent here. <laughs> Am I doing all right? No, Patrick? no, you're yeah. doing great. I love this. I... Uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I am a, a dad of two daughters and, uh, I have a 15 year old daughter. So when you talk about a 16 year old girl, like I'm, I'm in that period of life where I'm raising a young lady right now. And, um, you know, I want to, I want her to know that the world is hers, whatever she mm -hmm. wants it to be. And going back to academics, like, I'm like, if you want to be a tattoo artist, great. Like if you want, you know, you want to pursue art or whatever you want to do, like, try it out, you know, don't just limit your mind, like whatever it is in life. And like, um, I was, I was, after I read your book, I told myself that I want, um, I want my daughter to read your book, you know, like I, oh, that's so much oh. I it, it's, it's, it's important, you know, that, um, you said in, in your book, like the men and women are essentially living the same life, but in like, in like different experiences of the yeah. same life. And it, it's true. And your book is a really good example of the additional challenges that, you know, even like well-meaning people like dudes would be like, like uh, one guy was like, are you out here by yourself? And you said back to him, you're like, are you out here by yourself? You know, yeah. like, like it's just so, uh, it's so, uh, patronizing, you know, to, you know, and, and yeah. it's, and it's, and then there's like real threats and it's, yeah. you know, it's something that as a father of two girls that I, I want them to realize that they can do whatever they want. And I wonder if you find that, like, it seems to me, and it's something that I really like about endurance sports as, like I said earlier, it's like an equalizer where you see men and women competing more equally. And that's something that I personally love about it because it's not just about how tough or strong you are. Like you have to go into your entire arsenal of toolkit, um, to be successful. And it, and it really shows that we're all very capable, uh, very capable humans, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, I think that ultra endurance sports have the potential to be the most gender neutral place. And I don't think that like, you know, I think we should be very gender inclusive. I think, you know, we don't need those. We shouldn't need those labels. I think we still do in some places, but um, you know, that, that comment about that guy who said, Oh my God, you're alone. He was alone. I was DMing Mel Webb the other night and she's just come back from the Atlas and we were just ranting about the number of times in these races when guys that we're racing with will say, oh, my God, you're so strong. And they're so, like, congratulated. And you look at them and you go, you know, you're tied with me in the spike race for you to be saying that to me right now. You know, you're I'm yeah. as like, am I meant to say it back? And, and I know that they mean it really well. And a guy said it to me last week in Rwanda. And I just again, I looked at him and I was like, I must. 
like I'm writing the same piece as you. Um, I just want to say, guys, stop being surprised to see us. Like, it's really nice. It's really, really lovely when guys are so welcoming and they're so congratulating and they're so encouraging the way they are. I really love our community. I think the guys are always really, really kind to us. But stop being fucking surprised that we're there. Yeah. Yeah. Stop being surprised, you dumbasses. Yeah. And then don't tell me that I'm running the wrong gear ratio. I don't care. Stop talking about (laughs) it. Stop mansplaining, too. Yeah, exactly. Dude, it's an, it's really interesting like um being a podcast host just a a little tangent here but like it one thing that ha- I it's just like a my own personal study but there's been so many women who I've asked to like come on the podcast that the answers are always the same or or similar. It's like, "Oh, I'm not qualified." Um, there's somebody better that could speak to this. Like, you know, I, I don't feel confident, you know, and that's fine. Like that's, I'm not throwing shade, but like on the inverse, on the other side of the table, men are beating down my fucking door to come on the podcast. And like men just are like, have this, like, we fucking know everything and we're going to tell you about it thing. And there's, there's a, there's a distinct, no one wants to hear from them. They're really happy to do it. And I think it's, I do think it's a big factor in why we don't see as many women at the races. Cause you know, I speak to these women all the time. I, I try really hard to respond to every woman who DMs me or emails me about entering the races. And they always say things to me like, I'd really love to do the Silk Road. I'm thinking 2026 is the year. And I'm like, girl, just go. Like you're never going to be ready. And this is why apparently also the scratch rate between men and women, women are far less likely to scratch out of races. And I think it's because they hold themselves back for years until they finally let themselves believe that they can do it. So they fucking can when they finally do. Whereas the guys are a lot more willing to say, like, let's find out. Let's fuck around and let's find out yeah. and, and just sign up, which is great. And we need more of that energy. And we need, um, yeah, women stop holding yourselves back. Like we gotta got to get our voices out there. Yeah, yeah, I exactly. love that. And you're definitely championing that, which I think is is uh, huge. And I hope through my platform, I do a decent job of showcasing everybody who's um, Dude, doing yeah. amazing things. And it's I would not, say it stands out as a cycling podcast and that there are frequent female guests. So kudos to you. It's not I, And I, I want there to be more of them. So women, if I, here's my call to women. If I holler at you for an episode, step up, man. Like say yes. the cool thing, the thing about it is like, everybody's experience is relatable to so many people, you know, like we're always so, and I, I'm this way, we all are, but we're like, we're kind of like sheltered and we're like, Oh, I don't know if, you know, this is good enough or whatever, but like, we're just people connecting to other people and everybody understands like whether we can connect to like a direct like exactly the experience you're going through, maybe not, but we understand what challenges are. We understand what like the human and life experiences. And so every, I feel like everybody's story is relatable. And the more voices we add to that, like, uh, well, let me finish my thought. The more voices we add to that, like the better we all are and the more we can like progress together. And I'm speaking to myself because like one of the reasons I host a podcast is because like one of my struggles in life has been um, like anxiety, uh, not like anxiety, really bad anxiety that's been like life altering and paralyzing and, uh, you know, just hard. And through podcasts, 
and like long form conversations and just listening to other people who are also imperfect and who also have their own struggles and their own challenges is one of the things that's like genuinely helped me to be more like vocal and be more like, okay, with just being me because I can, I'm like, oh, there's other people that are also, you know, going through hard things. And so like, yeah, I think everybody's experience is just so valuable and I'm going on a tangent now. Oh, I love it. I love it. You're on such a good tangent. Don't stop. <laughs> I'm okay. I won't stop. I also like, that was my message to the women. Like I, I really, I think everybody's experience is valuable. And one of my goals for the platform is to showcase women. I was raised by a very strong mother, like just a force of nature. And I'm raising two daughters and like, I'm, I'm pro women, like a hundred percent, you know, and, uh, but, but there is, there's a difference between like the genders and I, I, I think it's so important when women like stand up and they're vocal and, and they, they are a representation matters, right? It's like, oh, okay, I can do that too, right? The same way I look at podcasts, I'm like, oh, other people are weird and they've got their issues and it makes me feel better about being me. Like we all kind of relate and kind of go through like other people's experiences. The thing about your book is like, this is my next point, is like your book has a has a, a a narrative of like sharing the female experience through you know what what you did and i think like i said i want my daughter to read it i want to share that book with her and have her read it but the other thing i wanted to say is i want men to read your book like i want men i think men could probably have the most to learn and to grow um from like that experience of like what it's like to be a woman and like that would help internalize and like expand on your topic of men don't be so surprised when you see us out there just be like hey how's it going you know nice to meet you yeah. where are you from I actually don't ask you where you're from I know you don't like that question because you no it's such a in- I do find it such a shame that um women's writing in the adventure sphere get put under the genre of women writing not adventure writing and so men will will typically not read or find my book and I've had so many men like at races or at events say oh my wife loved your book and I'm always like oh did you not think you would relate to it just like I only mentioned my period once you guys like it's not that bad like yeah really it's a book that men could I swear they could read it if they want to um but yeah at least yeah they say my wife loved your book and I go ha I'm in your house (laughs) I'm in there I, well, I will, I'll champion that and echo. I, I strongly, I think, not I mean, just my book, sorry, I'm not a narcissist, not just my book. I mean, just read a woman's book. Yeah. <laughs> a woman's Fair book. Enough. Open your mind, it, guys. It, is, it is your podcast. It so could it's be okay mine, to, but it could be it, another woman, any woman yeah. read her book. <laughs> read Cheryl Strade's book. But read Cheryl Strade. She's a much better writer. Start there. <laughs> It is a good progression. I won't say start there because it's better, but like it is a good like entryway. It's like a starting point for, and then like your story kind of is is the ultra version of like what she did. But, oh shit, what was I going to say? Oh, just to like, yeah, your adventure is, is relatable to everybody, gender, uh, aside, like as a man, I don't know why that fucking matters, but like, I'm like, holy shit, she's doing hard things. Doesn't matter what her gender are is like, that's, yeah, that's fucking so. gnarly. But also like the other part of that is it, it was, uh, it was informative. Maybe. Yeah. 
it, it did inform me to a larger degree of some of the uh, additional challenges that women face. I think Cheryl Strayed, do you remember the one in her book where like the two hunters came on, uh, came in, mm-hmm. up to her when she was like in the middle of the woods and they were yeah. really speaking inappropriate, like just like hitting on her and like, it's just two dudes in the middle of the woods and no one around. And in the book, she says that she hiked as far as she could, like getting away from these guys. Like once they kind of like separated, she like packed up camp and just hiked and hiked and hiked and hiked and hiked. And she said, I hiked until I couldn't hike anymore. And then I ran. And like those words, like, I think that's important for a man to hear is like, if you come up to a, I mean, just, I don't know, there's a million different examples, but like, don't be a weird, creepy dude in the middle of the woods. Oh, we and would like, so appreciate it if the weird, creepy dudes could just keep that to themselves from now on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for that. sure. Yeah, but like, yeah, I just, I think your book is a good way for, to like educate men and help see a different perspective of like how, patronizing it can be to just be like oh you're out on the trail like just it's like everything it's like all these interactions from like real yeah. threats of like guys that, they come from a really good place like that guy right. was trying to give me a compliment and and i hate that i've publicly shamed him because he gave me the wrong compliment but like yeah it's like think it through i'm not a baby i'm a grown-ass person and yeah well, I, we get treated like, like we're just so incapable it's just so unlikely to meet one of us yeah. No, I think it's a completely fair point. And you didn't mention the guy by name. And so, but that was only representative of like a larger, like that was one example of probably like thousands of examples that were exactly. Really? I could I, just go for a run locally and someone might say you go girl or something. I'm like, All right. Like, yeah. I mean, what would it be like to me if I was on a trail and like some dude like, oh, you're out here by yourself? I, I mean, it would like, it's unfathomable. That someone yeah. would ask me that question. So why is it so okay? And it's not okay, but why does it seem to be okay to be like, what are you doing out here? Are you safe? Where's your boyfriend or your husband or your dog to keep you safe? And do you know how far away that is? And do you know that there's a mountain? Like you're incapable of like understanding your own existence. Yeah, and like time. I have experience to rely on that I can brush those guys off because I know that I'm fine. I know that I belong here and I know that I can do this because I've done it enough. But actually for a woman on her first time adventure, the first time she books a ticket to leave her country and so people say, oh my God, you know, you get these comments and it you really gets in your head and it's impossible to communicate how much we internalize the doubts that we get from those around us. Because if your whole life people treat you like you should do a shorter course of the races and you should never camp alone and you should do this and you should follow all these rules because you're just a little delicate girl, you internalize so much of that. And then you start holding yourself back and then you start holding other women back because you talk about like that in front of them. And it just it becomes this whole thing where we believe that women are delicate and that they they don't get to do these things. And you know what? Yeah, we we are going to get hurt. You're going to go outside and you're going to get hurt. And then you're going to pick yourself up and you're going to tighten your ponytail and you're going to be okay. <laughs> and you're going to learn and you're going to grow. And you know what? We should celebrate that. And we should encourage that. Like it's, yeah, it's not all roses. Of course you're going to get hurt, but that's, yeah, it's part of the growth. I love that. Reason. So I was going to ask you like, what would be your advice to other women? And I feel like 
I don't know. I'll ask you that question, but I feel like you kind of answered it. Like, just go. You're going to get hurt. It's going to be hard. Tighten your ponytail and keep going. Yeah. And and back yourself then would be my advice. Um, especially for the younger women, because you're going to get the most com- comments out of everyone. But, you know, I'm 35 and I'm still getting those down comments. Um, so just back yourself, just be ready that everywhere you go, people are going to say, Oh my God, are you alone? Um, are you okay getting up the street? Like, you know, people are going to say things to you and you just need to steady yourself and say, I'm good. I'm backing myself. I can be my own cheerleader. Just, you know, believe in yourself, trust yourself. I trust you. I believe in you. You can say it in my accent if it helps you. Um, but yeah, just back yourself when you go out into the world, because you're gonna, you're gonna hear the doubt. It's a real shitty thing, but um, yeah, you're going to hear it. So just be ready to brush it off. Yeah. I I think that is great advice. First, that's the first time I've got that advice on the podcast. So I think that's, uh, that's gold right there. And, and you not only are offering that advice, um, but you're, you're an example of it. Like you're, you're doing that, like in your book, there's so many times where you like, I mean, it's, it's, I felt exhausted just reading your book. I mean, really, I'm just oh, like, no, oh, that's a bad review. No, 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 but no, I was like <laughs> there. No, it's a good review. I was there with you. Like I felt exhausted by yeah, all of the people that were like, you know how far that is. No, you can't do that. It's going to take you long. But the, the part of that, that like I wanted to touch on is like, you were your own advocate through the whole thing. You're like, nope. I'm good. I know what I'm doing. I'm faster than you think. I, how the fuck do you think I got here? You know, like I've been doing this for 500 kilometers or whatever. And like when those guys were surrounding you and you were in your tent and they were trying to get you to go, you were like, you're like, you said in your book, you're like, you didn't even stand up. You just like stayed in your sleeping bag. You were like protesting. You're like, I am not going anywhere. I am staying right Mm -hmm. here. And it's exhausting. Like I feel it sucks, right? Like that's the that's what we need to get over is like is is all of that bullshit so that you can just go and run or ride your bike and not have to deal with the exhaustiveness of just this inter this continual dialogue that's just like always there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. It is it's exhausting. It's a whole other whole other thing that we all just have to carry with us when we do stuff and and it would be amazing if we could stop. It'd be amazing if yeah. we could just end the patriarchy. Well, you're moving the needle forward. So, you know, Thanks. and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully this podcast moves it a little bit more. Hell yeah. All right. Man, we are chatty. This is good stuff. Uh let's uh I want to ask you a question. Um, okay. how are you doing on time, by the way? Yeah, I'm fine because it's evening here. So We'll, we'll wrap it up here pretty soon. Uh, I have lived, uh, I've been saying this for a while, that ultra-endurance, self-supported bike pack racing is the hardest endurance sport on the planet. And then I read your book, and I'm like, oh, shit. I didn't even know that this, I really didn't know that this was a thing. I, I'd never heard of this before. And so I'd like to get your opinion as a person who, I mean, cause the cool thing is again, you ran in Kyrgyzstan and then you rode your bike in Kyrgyzstan. You, I think you ran in Atlas, uh, in Morocco before you rode your bike in Morocco. 
So you have like, you can really kind of compare notes and obviously they're kind of different things, but like, what's harder? I really, I am super Ooh. curious. Like what, what is the harder endurance sport? Ooh, that's really difficult. That's a difficult You're question. the only one I, that in the world that can answer this question. Yeah, I've done the research. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? They're both hard in really unique ways. Like what sucks about one is great about the other kind of thing. And I think that's why I do both. So, you know, cycling so much faster. And that means that you run out, you don't run out of water because you'll get to the next river way faster and the next resupply. Um, so that makes it really nice but then suddenly your fucking bike breaks and you're dealing with the mechanical and then you really wish that you were running again where you have that freedom so they are completely different um if i have to give you an answer i would say running can be obviously a lot harder on your body um i think that's why a lot of people cycle is because they yeah. hurt their body running uh but then running has just that simplicity that you're not held back by these wheels that need to find ground to roll on so Again, it's like, it's just totally different. They're hard in completely different ways. Um, and I'm really grateful that I do both. And I'm going to keep doing both because, you know, I do one and it makes me miss the other and, and vice versa. Um, different. Some places are better with one than the other. Um, I really liked riding my bike in the Atlas Mountains, again, with the water thing. Like, you know, there are some parts of my run where I had to go 50 kilometers without getting any water. That's no, hard no. when you're running. That's too far. But on your no. bike, you don't think about it. Just put a couple bottle cages in and off you go. So, you know, that one was that one was easier. Mar or I Kyrgyzstan, I'm back and forth on which was easier. Oh, really? It's but, kind of a toss-up? Yeah, kind of a toss-up. Yeah, because once I went back last time I went to the Silk Road, I actually was a mountain biker by then. I rode a mountain bike. And then I was like, oh, this is actually quite nice to be able to mountain bike over at Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> Turns out it's a lot easier. Um, yeah. So that, that made it nice. But then there's obviously a lot of time that you spend underneath your bike carrying it up something. And that'd be easier with that. So yeah, uh, I don't know. That's a really hard question. Okay. So they're both tough. Because in my mind, tough. like, I, I really thought once I read your book, I was like, oh, this is way harder. And this is speaking, obviously, as a person who doesn't self-proclaim, like not a runner, mm. but it does seem, yeah, there's no coasting. Uh, no coasting. There's yeah, way longer between resupply points. And mm. you're not on a freaking road or a trail. Like it's not a designated thing where you're like, oh, people go here it's just, just yeah, pick okay, a line on a mountain. Skill set. Yeah, because I was I was really comfortable with those bits, and yeah, the being out in the wilderness for five days without a resupply, I think I was just kind of like, yeah, I think I was okay with that. But yeah, that's going to intimidate you. Then then yeah, running is going to be harder because yeah, the distances yeah. take so much longer. Well, you're right. I think it speaks to your point earlier about you know the more you do, um butchering your par this paraphrase but essentially like the more you do the more you grow and the more capable yeah. you are and your comfort zone expands and so your comfort zone is just expanded to where you know doing those five days without resupply is within a comfort zone alex honnold yeah. crying climbing el capitan without a rope he says is within his comfort zone you know that's exactly. mind-blowing yeah. to people but yeah he yeah he, yeah, I've listened to quite a few podcasts with him and uh, he's a fascinating person. But it, yeah, it just speaks to like, 
I think that, yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to tie a bow on that is like, what is ultimately going to determine how difficult something is will speak directly to your comfortability and your experience with that thing. So, you know, for me, running across Kyrgyzstan is going to be a hundred times harder than riding my bike across it. Yeah. Um, but if you're a runner coming into cycling, it might be like, oh, you know, there's no way. I mean, I don't even know how to fix a flat. I don't know what PSI I should be at. Like, I don't know about yeah. gears, you know, so it. I think, I think you got a good answer. Okay. What about... What about, um, another thing I've always been interested about, I, f- I feel like cycling is a little bit safer in that you're moving through the world at a different speed than everybody else. So like if you're running, I guess you're like a little bit faster than them, but you're kind of like in the mix of like pedestrian traffic and you're like yeah. more, you know, there's not this like object that's kind of like separating me from you. Like you're going slower than cars, but faster than people. And so you can kind of just like float through space and time and it feels like it kind of insulates you. So I was wondering if you could like speak to does cycling feel safer to you than running? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I've never spoken to anyone about that, but you've put it really well. I do feel like, um, I do feel more vulnerable without my bike. Um, yeah, the bike, yeah, it's this big metal thing that's carrying all your stuff and like you can sprint away on it a lot faster and, um, yeah. And it just, it feels like a companion at times as well doesn't it? Um, so yeah, I do, I do feel a little bit more confident with my bike usually. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think you're, I think you've nailed it. That okay. You're yeah. I'm not a runner, but that was, when I was reading your book, I, that was one of the, yeah, the thing that like stood out to me as well. All right. Bikepacking racing career. You just, uh, and now you wrote a really good, uh, piece on your Substack about, your last it's been what two and a half years since you've done an ultra yeah and yeah so you wrote a a big piece or not a big piece but you wrote a piece for your Substack. you know talking about why you've been away from the sport that's really good where where do you think you go now like are you getting back into well what i mean you just did race across race around Rwanda you did you finished it in third place um and I'll I know that like you just wanted to finish like you weren't necessarily gunning for like the top prize or the the hat don't you get a hat if you come in first on that oh that's Kyrgyzstan you don't get a hat for race around Rwanda what do you get if you win I don't know I didn't win yeah. <laughs> you get nothing for third. That's nothing. on par or far for bikepacking racing. Yeah. But what what's next for you? Like where where do you think you go from here in your athletic career? Um yeah, so I'm gonna race quite a lot this year, um, both on foot and on bike. And a lot of that is through the soul searching that I did over that two and a half years of recovery, um finding out that I do love this sport. And I don't want to lose it. And the thing that I love the most about it is the community. And that comes from going to these events. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to do some more events that aren't super competitive. And I'm going to do a few rallies this year as well. Um, but, yeah, most of, most of our events are races. And so I'll, I'll beat a lot of them this year. And a lot, a lot of my goals in them will be to have an amazing time. I'm sure I'll try to compete a couple of times 
Um, but for the most part, I just want to be, I want to be back. I want to be back in the mix. I miss the weird, crazy bike packing people. So um, literally in packing mayhem right now, because I'm flying to Sweden Thursday. So in two days to do a fat biking race. I've never done fat biking, but I'm going to do an Arctic race. Um, and then I'm, then I think I'm straight into a foot race and then the Highland Trail in Scotland, which passes near my front door. So I've kind of got no good reason not to do it. Oh, you're doing the HT 550 Highland Trail 550. Oh, yeah. that's exciting. That's one that's yeah. on my bucket list. It just looks like an idyllic place to go ride. Yeah, hard. I, think I know it's hard too. And you've never been to Scotland. You can think that <laughs> you don't yeah. know about our, our headwinds and our midges, but yeah. Yeah. I've heard like about said, the midges. In my neighborhood. I can literally like get a lift to the start line in a couple hours and don't have to fly anywhere, which is really nice. Are you planning any more books? Do you think you might write a uh, book about bikepacking? Maybe I haven't, I haven't spoken to my publisher about pitching anything. Um, yeah, maybe it's funny writing a book takes a lot out of you. Well, it took a lot out of me. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, once you write it, the shit thing is then you got to promote it. Like you think you're done and you send in your manuscript and you're like, I did it. No, you've not done it. Now you have to promote it. Now you have to speak to people and on stages and beg people to give you five-star Amazon reviews or else no one will buy it. Never get another book deal again. That was a plug. Please review my book if you've read it <laughs> only oh if you like it only five stars <laughs> yeah um, so only think, rate uh, it if you like it yeah please only rate it if you like it if you didn't like it still no refunds that's my policy um yeah. yeah i will write another book one day um i'm not working on one at the moment how's that what determines if you if and when you write a book like do you just feel like okay i i have something worth saying like what what's the what motivates you or prompts you to actually sit down and go through that entire process of writing a book, editing it, and then freaking promoting it? Like it's a whole nother job. Like what, what is the mechanism that kind of spurs that? I got, I got very hounded by a publisher. So I girl, the girl thing of us saying, no, like we're not qualified. When a publisher first approached me, I said, thank you so much. That's so kind. But I obviously I'm too young. I haven't, I'm not ready to write a book. I haven't got anything interesting to say to say. And, um, and she, she just kind of called me back every three months to say, are you ready yet? Are you ready yet? And then during lockdown 2020, she got me, I had nothing better to do. And I started thinking about it again. And she called me up and she was like, come on, write the book. And so she gave me a nice book deal. And so that was what encouraged me was um, one woman calling me up all the time, telling me that I could write a book and yeah. And I, and it turned out I did have a lot to say because I had this five-year project that I, I tried to cram into 80,000 words. How do you feel about the book? I know you haven't read it again, but um, yeah. yeah. How do you, how do you feel about, I mean, that's a huge accomplishment um, how do you feel about the book and the response that you've got and the fact that it's like out there in the world now? Good question. It's not something I actually think about. Um, I'm very proud of myself that I did it. And that's a very hard thing to me for me to say that I'm proud of myself, but Good. you know, it's not just how long it took me to write the book, you know, it's that whole project. And, um, and there are parts of that book where I really bear my soul. And I'm glad that I'm in a place in my life that I'm totally comfortable doing that. And I, 
you know, I'm, I'm really happy to tell people the whole very raw truth about things. And, you know, I love that about myself. So yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it being done. I'm grateful beyond belief that I had that opportunity that I had a publisher that wanted to make that happen for me. Cause you know, obviously I wrote it, but then other people had to go edit it and design covers and sell it and translate into other languages, all these things, you know, like you're just, you're just one small part of it. Um, so yeah, I'm really grateful for that and that people actually read it and that people come and tell me that they liked it. I, I get really awkward when people say that to me, but it's also really, it's a really lovely thing to to work so hard on something and have people actually read it and appreciate it. Yeah. I feel like I can relate to you. I, I don't, I, I've had to work on it because I am the most awkward person you'll ever meet if you come up and be like, oh, I listen to your podcast. It's so great. And did it. I'm like, no, no, stop. We're all introverts in this industry. It's ridiculous to have to make us go out in public. We're not prepared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I think they're like, by and large, you're right, mostly all introverts. And so, you know, I just sit in my house and I send out episodes into the universe and I just like hang out in my home and like it, I'm completely insulated from it unless I go to like a bike race or something. And then I meet people and it's like scary and you're like, oh, wow, people are, but it's also, it's really cool, you know, and I, it's something I've had to, you know, fight against like that imposter syndrome and just like, okay, I did this. This is a real thing and just accept it. And it can, I can, I can definitely relate to that part of it, but, um, I'll, I'll, I'll add and make it awkward and, and say that I, I really appreciated your book. Um, you're a huge inspiration, uh, to me and to people all around the world. But, uh, I was, I was like legitimately nervous to, uh, to do this episode and I don't always no. get, Oh man, I couldn't sleep last night. I was just like, uh, I would pull up my notes and I would like, rewrite. Realize there's just no need. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just a lesson I always have to keep telling myself like, but it's a, it's a balance of you. I need to put in the work so it goes well, but like, I don't like being stressed out and nervous isn't gonna be productive in any way. And so, yeah, but I, yeah, I, I really, and the other thing is like when you read a book, like you feel like you know somebody to a degree, yeah. like, you know, a version of them. And I was thinking about it as, as I was like reading and preparing for this episode, like, cause people write to me and talk to me in a way of familiarity. And I'm like, wait, what's your entry point here? What have you read? What do you know? And I'm like, <laughs> it, it's just, it's a whole level of awkwardness that. I'm still learning yeah, how to really manage. Is. Yeah, we're good that we're on the same page, though. At least, like, I listen to your podcast because, yeah, I get, I get the same thing that people come up to me and they just they dive right in with one of my big life issues or something, and you know, and I'm yeah. like, I'm sorry, what's your name? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they just they know you so well, and they're like, let's go running together. I think we should. Visit it. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> it's really yeah. nice, but yeah, um, yeah, you got to slow down and give me a chance because I'm not. You know, if you've not written a book, then I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's unfair. When I started dating Natalie, I told her it's unfair. Like you need to write a yeah. book. You need to produce a podcast or something because you like, have got to a lot get of... to know her. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I had to do the work. Like what the heck? Traditional way. <laughs> 
Well, Jenny Tuff, it's been an absolute pleasure. I mm-hmm. covered about 10% of my notes, but um, hopefully oh. you'll come back on the podcast again one day and uh, we yeah, can keep talking. Yeah, after you've done the editing and you think, mm. yeah, I would love it if you would invite me back. Oh, I'd love to have you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, thanks for letting me take up so much of your time. I, I was like, oh, we'll do it in like an hour and a half, but <laughs> two and a half hours later, here Just we are. Really close. What's next yeah. for you? What are you doing today after this podcast? Uh, I'm going to try and do a test ride with my fat bike um, and then pack it into a bag so I can fly and go race. So first test ride with uh, all of your, like a a loaded fat bike, this will be like your first test ride with it? Yeah. And then flying out to Sweden to go race it. Yeah, yeah, that's the plan. I love it. I love it. Well, good luck on uh, Sweden and all of the other adventures. Uh, We'll catch up with you another time. Yeah, amazing. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Jenny. Have a good day. You too. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. And thanks again to Jenny Tuff for coming on the podcast. And good luck, Jenny, on your first fat biking race. That sounds cold. And I'm glad that it's you and not me out there. Uh, But I hope you have a good race. And next week's episode has already been recorded. It's going to be with John Schilling, who's the current race director for the AZT. As many of you know, I'm going to be attempting the AZT 300 in April, and I am inviting people to join. So if you're interested in lining up and doing kind of an unofficial group start of the AZT and potentially riding together or riding past each other, uh, I'll probably be in the back of the pack, but who knows? I might uh, see you out there on the trail. Um, you can find out more at bikesordeath.com under the events tab. Uh, I have some information there that'll link to registration. Of course, it is absolutely free to come and ride. There's no fee to do this unofficial group start, but registering just lets me know you're coming. And so we can plan on it. And we also have like a Facebook group going where we're working through logistics and answering questions and, uh, So if that sounds like a good time and you want to join us, we would love some company out there on the AZT. So that episode for next week is somewhat of an opportunity for me to ask some questions to John, the man himself. Uh, But also that episode is just going to be a great introduction to the AZT for anyone who's interested in that route or potentially doing it one day. And that's all we got for you this week. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider supporting our work. Great way to do that is by signing up as a sustaining member over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. Another great way is to take advantage of all of our affiliate links. We have them all available at bikesordeath.com under the affiliate link section. We have a lot of affiliates in the outdoor industry. And every time you use one of those links, Bikes or Death gets a little clinky clink in our bank account and that helps support the show directly. So if you can, those are some great ways to help out. But mostly I want to thank you just for being here. It is always a pleasure. And until next week, you know what to do. Go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you they made kept you afraid in the morning you packed your bike memories forgotten
was it your imagination or merely folklore? Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless. Your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself, just a few more miles. Thanks.